0: So I was like going through and pulling the ones that were the most important cuz some of them like weren't, you know.
1: That's my experience with a lot of reader apps.
0: I'm so Kindle pissed, dude. Kindle
1: works pretty well. That's probably the best one, but like all the other reader apps are
0: I mean, honestly like iBooks is fine. It's like smooth sailing for the most part. I like that it has the function where you can see your notes in the margin if you do it on the desktop. Like honestly, a lot of ways in which it's great i don't know if it's just like my software that didn't like isn't updated i had to like sign into it's just a bunch of bullshit like it's probably just some stupid
1: it's more like the software that's the thing is that it's the software works fine for its main function which is to read pdfs or whatever you know But then when, like, these little functions that just don't work, like, oh, you can export your notes, but, like, you can't really because it doesn't work. Or, like, like... you
0: can't in the mobile app, but you can on the desktop. And for whatever reason, even if I checked the box that was, like, you know, share notes across devices, share highlights and notes across devices, it didn't import that way.
1: Yeah, Apple does I was like, oh, this
0: will be easy. And it just didn't import and I was like, I could delete it from my library, but I was like, no, I'm gonna like I don't want to risk losing all my shit. Like, not right now. This is not the day. I mean, set myself to inactive on Slack. Oof, man, yeah, that's a hell of a copy. I would say that we just plug the like I'm sure that's a nice copy to have if you're like interested in reading all of Fitzgerald. I honestly don't know that I am.
1: i I I would also plug
0: the the uh what is it the you know mass market because it's like five dollars or some shit i almost bought it i was like no there's got to be two copies of this at my house there weren't
1: i only bought this crappy kind of print on demand one because yeah it had all four of his novels in it yeah and i'm a sucker for that so i'm just like all right if it's it was like 20 bucks i'm a sucker for for, like a
0: flimsy copy i can carry around and if i bought
1: i could buy the four you know five dollar copies it would be the same price so i just like did it all in one book and i was just like yeah fuck it you know he's old enough that this stuff is in the public domain and stuff so the people just doing like print on demand versions whatever
0: yeah, I mean, like, you can also just get it for free on Apple
1: Books. Yeah, also, like, it's so popular. Oh, I'm, sure, yeah. I'm sure it's free online everywhere.
0: Yeah, there are a bunch of audiobooks that are free. There are multiple versions that are free. And then, like, if you're a sucker, you can pay for the Jake Gyllenhaal version, which I don't know why you would. like.
1: Jake Gyllenhaal version?
0: Yeah, there's a Jake Gyllenhaal version that he narrated. There's a lot of that.
1: Oh, an audiobook?
0: Yeah, there are okay. a lot of those. Yeah. And I'm, like, they're almost never, with the exception of a few, like, like, maybe if, like, Tim Curry is reading one, like, he'll be good. Because he, normal? like, does that.
1: Yeah. It's but, normal like, to have, like, But, like, sometimes you get,
0: like, Gyllenhaal, and I'm just, yeah. like, yeah, I don't, like, like, you're reading, like, slowly, like, you're trying to act it, but, like, it's not, that's not what we're doing. <laughs> like, don't do that. But I don't know what it is, man. Sometimes it just pisses me off.
1: Yeah, I don't have much experience. I mean, I've listened to audiobooks, but I find that I prefer to not listen to them.
0: I um
1: but it's like yeah, I mean they they've always done actors, you know, like yeah. hired. If it's a big enough book, they'll hire an actor it to depends. do the audio reading. And sometimes it works out, like you said, sometimes they get an actor in there that can really like bring something out of it, like really all you bring need is a decent voice it. actor or like someone yeah. who's a good reader. Somebody like, do cartoon yeah. voices, but you know Gyllenhaal Hall is somebody like they're just doing that. I remember Matt Damon did like an audio narration of the people's yeah. history after the Goodwill Hunting thing. Yeah, you know why they hired Matt Damon, I mean, not just because he's a famous actor because because of that fucking line in Goodwill Hunting, yeah, when he's talking to him, he's like, you know you fucking people baffle me he's like you spend all these money on books and they're the wrong damn books he's like what are the right books will he's like hey whatever blows your hair back and he's like you read the complete history of the united states volume one he's like what you should really read is howard Zinn's a people's history of the united states that book will knock you on your ass that's the exact line and then they had matt damon start narrating the audiobook (laughs) for people's history of the united states
0: sounds like a terrible idea
1: uh, have you read that? As a listener. Yeah. I mean,
0: like for me as a listener, I would hate that.
1: <laughs> I, no, I, I haven't. We have a copy. Yeah. Everybody bought a copy when it came out because Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States was yeah, like huge. Bill's book. Yeah. I bought it and read it. And it's it was, you know, I was too young when I read it. But at the time I was like, yes, it's like a secret. He's be, he's revealing a secret. <laughs> <laughs> you know? It's like, yes, yeah. it's it's secret history. Secret. <laughs> <laughs> I believe that I was like 18 reading this book. Yeah. <laughs> but it's written like a fucking textbook, dude. That's, that's what bothered me about people. Because, I mean, he's a fucking history professor. So, like, it's written yeah, like no. a fucking history textbook and it's fucking boring. Like, there's no, you know, I don't really like nonfiction books either because of that. It's Unless you have a really time good time. writer. Yeah. Yeah, if it's a really good writer and it's nonfiction, then there's it's a like lot very that's done enjoyable. Well. Yeah, then it's enjoyable and like a pleasure to read. You know, the, I was talking some to of you, the I've Nazi ones are good. Blue... The Nazi ones, yeah, dude.
0: Nazi ones are usually good.
1: I, I mean, every sorry. year there's like a new Nazi book. Yeah,
0: supposedly this one reads like a like a novel almost, but what I haven't read one? it yet.
1: Story of a secret uh, state.
0: Story of a secret state by Jan Karski. He was like a.
1: What is that about Hitler or the Nazis? Mm,
0: yeah, well, he, it's a Holocaust memoir. Oh, okay. Let's see. He served as a liaison officer for the Polish underground during World War II and carried the first eyewitness report um, of the Holocaust hmm. to the mostly unbelieving West. Right. So, yeah.
1: Huh. Yeah. Sophie and I joke all the time, people know like uh the, the like the the Hitler genre of book. There's like a you know, it's just like a genre of, of nonfiction book now. Like the secret secret uh Hitler's secret Jews, right? Or like Hitler's secret army or like uh
0: Um it was the one that I favor. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs>
1: The one you'd recommend for...
0: Um, is Hitler's Jewish Soldiers. Yeah. Fascinating. Um, it's not one that you might want to... You might not want to, like, sit down and read it, but it's certainly a good <laughs> coffee table book. <laughs> Start a conversation it, in your house. Um, you people know, come into your I, house, they'd
1: be like, so, you a fascist? Or There uh, are, are some <laughs> fascinating portraits
0: of, um, like, people throughout... Their experience of the war, like there is, this one guy where it was just like here's an image of him before he was found out, and here's an image of him after he was found out, and the images are pretty different. Like, but only um, because of what is happening on his face. And then there's this guy, there's pretty this one guy, oh pretty horrific. God, it, you're saying? Um, like, I mean it just. Just like the, like it goes from like I'm a young right. soldier and healthy, I'm just a strapping yeah. <laughs> young man yeah. to like oh shit, to I was starved been, systemically. For not years. even that. Yeah. Just like I'm going to die in a minute because they just found out that I'm part like I'm a uh, Jew. Oh right, 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 yeah. So, um, well, because that's what it's really about, right? Because even if yeah, you yeah. were like if you were Jewish and you could get away with, like. Right. Yeah, yeah. You know, um
1: survival mechanism, yeah. Yeah, it, yeah. that's what it was. It right. was
0: like so, you know, as detestable as it might be, um a lot of it was about just trying not to be found out. Right. A lot of them yeah. were found out. Um there is this one guy though <laughs> that my dad always points to that we always open to, a man named Fritz Binder.
1: Well, that I is think. that is a Jewish name, yeah. And there's this
0: one black and white image of him as a strapping young, I guess Nazi <laughs> soldier carrying water buckets, like you know, on a pole across right, like, right. his back. And yeah. and in the next photo is like the biggest like volcanic kind of fatty rolls of a man um, who just, as my dad would say, looks like he takes the smelliest dumps in the world. Um, Fritz Binder. It also sounds like it might be a kind of bowel movement you could have. (laughs) Oh, shit. I'm in a real Fritz Binder here.
1: Oh, this goddamn Fritz Binder. Uh.
0: Yeah, it sounds like constipation.
1: Yeah, some type of uh, Um, stopping up.
0: But, yeah, it's wild. It's also, I mean, it's just interesting if you're, like, interested.
1: Well, I mean, Not everybody's gonna. fascinated. I mean, I think the reason that everybody's fascinated by the Third Reich is because it's, like, the most vivid kind of moment in the last, you know, 100 years of history that everyone's just like, wow, that happened, you know? Like, so well, everybody's and a fascination kind of
0: like, with, like, oh, how do you become that? Like, how right. do you um, become someone who serves that cause? Yeah, even as like a young Jewish person,
1: and it's it's even more disturbing when you actually read how one does that. Where it's just like, you know, it was just like, well, they were either yeah, just trying to survive, or like you just believe it, or you know, just ordinary people that were just put yeah. into these positions and like. If they weren't put into that position, maybe they wouldn't have gone into you know that kind of thing. Yeah. But like since they were, you know, just normal people start doing things that are hideous and ugly, and we're all like, "Oh my god, how does yeah. that happen?"
0: It, I mean, yeah, it's but just, that's
1: that one book, uh, "Ordinary Men." I forget who writes it, but that uh,
0: is that what it's called? I feel like well, that there's that. It's just, a just
1: one of many I where like sociologists wrote this one about, yeah. Um, yeah. Just how, you know, when they marched into Poland and then made the Polish be the guards at the camps kind of yeah, thing. Yeah, you're
0: right. Ordinary you know, men.
1: How did that happen? Like these people.
0: Christopher Browning.
1: Yeah, okay. Interesting to read if you're interested in that kind of stuff, but sometimes it can get pretty dark and like, yeah. I mean, it's all really dark. Yeah. Another
0: good one um, is The Light of Days. That's about the women's resistance in Poland.
1: Yeah, and I remember having to read, like, you know, like, uh, Ellie Weissel and stuff. Like, I remember having to read that in school as a kid and uh, really liking it. And then, yeah, I mean, mean, a lot of these books, they do give you in school if you're...
0: Yeah, this one's Judy Battalion, The Light of Days. It's pretty recent, I think, actually.
1: Oh, yeah, dude. Sure way to get a book deal? Write a book about the Third Reich, dude. (laughs) And, like, the atrocities Um, that happened in, like, the 20th century. I imagine
0: it's a pricier book. I... Got this copy used. Uh, I recommend getting it used. It's it's a good read. I say that I have yet to finish it.
1: I was actually, I guess there was something online I kept seeing this week of people posting the statistics for book sales for last year, mm-hmm. uh, and it is pretty fucking dire, uh, regardless of genre, regardless of popularity. You know. Yeah. Uh, it's pretty. Uh, wow, it's sad. We're well, literally I mean, overseeing the collapse of the industry. That's what's has me so crazy to me. All these people insisting they love books, insisting they love this stuff, and then they're just like presiding over the collapse of literacy and the actual publishing industry to irrelevancy. Nobody cares what the latest hot book is, nobody gives a shit who the latest author is. Like, it's cultural irrelevancy. And then you see it just kind of compound. Like nobody is, That's like the even thing the best though, there sellers.
0: There are still, there are still those that care. I have this friend that I was talking to her. Well, I just mean they don't, don't care enough like,
1: to buy the books. It's just small, see, small niche community. Let that, that Yeah, does. there are so these us, communities.
0: But I your guess, friend,
1: yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Our listeners. I mean, maybe, well, I even like,
0: think like my sister, like who, yeah. you know, educated. reads far more in a month than I probably do in two. And she'll like, educated professional
1: yeah she's educated professional just uh, um
0: and she will still like you know be like all right i'll read the pulitzer like
1: right yeah you know
0: and she she reads a lot a lot a lot um but you know i talk to i talk to people about it and you know while they still like rely on these things or they'll like hear um someone talk about like a new author on a podcast or whatever it is and like it was funny i was talking to my one friend and she was just like man i'm just so disappointed like i just had to i don't know i finished this book and like <laughs> and she's like been raving about it for like a lot in a bad way of, um right like for the last couple of weeks that she's just so mad about this book but
1: i guess we shouldn't yeah. say what the book is if, uh, i mean i don't even remember what it's right, called yeah. We don't um, want to spread unnecessary... Uh, no, you know.
0: I mean, it sounded like it was just a situation where there was a lot of telling and not showing and oh, yeah. it was very kind of... I don't know. But yeah, there's... I don't know. I've talked to a couple people about that where they're just like, yeah, I just don't... I'm, they're, it's the struggle to sift through everything, right? You're going to get 800 million recommendations of whatever hot new... Book someone is pushing somewhere, whether it's like because they had that connection, or, and it was a friend, or it was, you know, um, just what it, something that is closer to their personal interest, and that's fine. Um, but it's really hard, I think, <clears throat> well, for I think a lot of people to find.
1: There's entire, I mean, that there's more than ever, right? I saw it was a viral tweet a couple months ago but I thought it captured something that was very accurate about almost every industry right now where it just said everything is more popular and more niche than ever like simultaneously and it's a very weird dynamic that like we've managed just to create for ourselves that like things can be super popular while at the same time having like half the population have no idea what it is you know like type thing Yeah, books fall into that they're kind of way down on but the it's a, list yeah but. I
0: mean it's already such a small community I think of, well, and they're keep narrowing well, it, it further entire it genres are like a lot of fucking people read maybe it's just because maybe I just feel that way because everyone in my immediate sphere reads
1: same but I think that makes it so that we're not seeing the larger picture because we are so you know we're come out of a certain sure. type of class or whatever we're educated to a certain level we actually have degrees in reading books so i mean it's like we're a certain type of person but even
0: people who don't i think some people like grow into reading
1: sure I right? think people like I, I
0: think um and, you know it might not be like someone who's think... like reading novels it might just be like you know <clears throat> a mom who's like really into reading nicholas sparks and like that's
1: fine well this is that's I, fine too This is why I always try to get at when we talk to authors about the industry because it is this kind of you market yourself. The big presses do not market your books anymore. They have shrugged off that responsibility and then they shrug their shoulders when the sales are low and they make no money and lose money on the book or the investment. Think of like the genres that are being completely, like absolutely completely neglected right now. There are just only a few genres that you can even publish books in most Delinging. of it is well mostly you can get a you can, if you walk into a bookstore any bookstore even like you the mean major in, chains in
0: like fiction or i mean
1: all d- of it so even in like there's a couple options of so fiction there's only a few options where you can get this kind of second third gen immigrant story that's literally all that's published or you know a few other but like the entire genres are just being neglected from this area uh then you could get political nonfiction is basically the only nonfiction you're allowed to get published or they'll bother publishing because they think that's what sells and that's what's sold for the last couple years. But even now, if you look at the numbers like that is going down all these types of like like there's just and not just that you talk about the political polarization. So like most of publishing seems that they're only care about marketing to one half of the country, one half of the audience and then they're just completely neglecting, actually actively shunning the other half of the audience that they could get for book sales. So, again, sales don't seem to matter to these companies anymore. They seem to be prioritizing something else. Uh, you guys can take a wild guess as to what you think that is. Uh, you know, They seem to be prioritizing things other than publishing books for people to buy. They're publishing books to what they think is changing the world. That's one of the issues with it but it's also like you know we're becoming more illiterate like literacy rates peaked in the 60s in this country and have gone down ever since so we have an illiterate country that i mean you've seen this in classrooms dude i have college students at community college levels like they cannot read and write like they cannot read and write like it's impossible for them but somehow they're sitting in a college 101 english class you know like somehow they're sitting here and it's like okay. And I get they're not marketing to that demographic. Sure, you know, the illiterate. But, like, these used to be cool. Like, it used to be cool to have read the latest hot book and know about it and talk about it. You know what I mean? And, you know, John Waters has made this argument, you know, two decades ago and shit like that. Plenty of people. But there is this cultural irrelevancy around books, novels. Poetry has been going on even longer than novels. But, like, it's incredible. And I've been going on a Harold Bloom kick recently as i always do because this is a harold bloom podcast we uh, i've just been watching a lot of his youtube interviews a lot of like his essays and he was saying all of this in the 80s and 90s and it's only been proven correct in terms of what we're dealing with now
0: the thing is like i can't help but feel like there's a lot out there that i would really enjoy like whether or not it's like, i mean like, i buy great. the
1: ones that are hyped like i just bought a tessa masagoos Whatever, her big novel, you know, um. My Year of Rest and Relaxation or whatever it is. The um, I just bought hers. It's sitting on my stack of to read. I'm about to pick it up in a couple of weeks here, depending on our reading schedule and, you know, everything else going on. But, like, I have it on there. You know, I, I, I'm interested. <laughs> like, I'm interested to participate in the cultural, you know, milieu of novels and publishing and poetry and who's writing what and what's good, what's terrible, who's publishing it, you know that's yeah, what this whole podcast is about, about, about. like i'd read that. you and i do that yeah let's add it to the list because i have it sitting um, here why not we'll read it for the podcast listeners can tell us if they want us to read otessa i hear she's good i and then she, i've I, read uh, interviews with her i
0: don't even her. fucking know anything about her like see i feel like i'm so out of the loop on fiction too and i only hear about like the pulitzer winner and you know, every other well, what I mean? Everything week, you're my interested, sister's texting me about like some book that she just read or like some Sally Rooney shit or, you know.
1: Well, even I get that, too, with with both genres, like friends will text me or people will sell me stuff. Like, I've never fucking heard of it, like kind of thing. Well, and, that, and, you uh, and it me, pumps you up. like Yeah, well, also, you and like, me are people that actually follow the field, too. Like, you know, our social media followings and like stuff like that, things we follow. Are customized to the things we're interested in, you know. So we follow book stuff, we follow publishers, we follow magazines, and you know, it's just we're still out of the loop because everything is more niche and more popular than ever. For some, it's this crazy fucking thing. I don't know how yeah, it happened. It's just
0: it's so there's so much. It's so hard to sift through. There's so um, much,
1: but so much of it is. I mean, I get it, you know. So like, if you're writing, it's not YA, all gonna be great. There are gonna be some yeah. stinkers. That's why I always get frustrated. And, you know, I get frustrated because I'm in the process of soliciting agents and stuff. And, you know, I've gotten a couple letters, you know, responses that are like, oh, we like this, but, you know, like that kind of. And I, my opinion, listeners can chime in on this. Like, I think that's worse than just a straight up rejection. I would rather be straight up rejected than having like, this is really good, but, you know, like kind of like I'm like, no, no, no. Just tell me it's fucking awful and you don't want it. Like, I don't want to hear that it's good. But, like, you know, like, I don't need that. Like, fuck off. But anyway, it just irritates me because I'm just like, all right, like, if you all know this market so well, then, like, why is everything fucking collapsing? Like, then why are you not selling fucking books? Like, if you know this so well, like, why are you not selling books? It's because they don't know. They're making it up as they go along. But anyway, enough of that even that we do something like the great gatsby we think something like the great gatsby would get published today or would it get passed over by the geniuses that know the market so well
0: honestly i don't know for this one i don't know
1: i would say no
0: i mean well for i think for some obvious reason and i mean right now i don't mean
1: yeah i don't mean like 5 years ago or 10 years ago or you know whatever the 90s i mean literally right now and literally the most censorship that i've ever lived through in my life where like i do not think that a book like this would get published i mean so speaking of authors genres that are just completely vapid like there's just nothing taking the place i'm a huge vonnegut guy there's nobody writing like that there's nobody filling that void of like the men that like vonnegut kind of thing and you know vonnegut wrote mostly for men and so okay i get that right this is a more narrow market than like everybody type thing but like yeah i wish somebody would be writing like that i wish but again like maybe they are they're just not getting published in the mainstream areas you're not getting in the main magazines you're not getting in the major presses you have to go to independent small presses that can't get books into amazon and can't get books into the local stores and stuff like that because they just don't have the resources time staff you know it's we're letting it happen. And this, everybody listening to this, if you are letting this happen, if you are letting literature be destroyed, I'm just so sick of it. Like do something, (laughs) try to not let it happen. Like if you have any position, (laughs) agent, editor, publisher, if you're just a fucking intern at the publishing house, like do what you can to try and make this thing cool again, try and make it like culturally relevant and stop like making yourself irrelevant and losing money. I don't know what is going on, but and if you look at the movies that are being made of books, you know, the big bestsellers get movies in the last five, six years. The big bestsellers, of course, get movies made, you know, where the crawdad sings, these type of thing, right? They get movies made, but even then, like Most of the movies, even most of the crime movies and things like that that are being made are being based off of books written 50, 60 years ago because the publishing is just not filling this market that people were willing to spend money on. Crime novels, you know, the kind of stuff. And those tend to be a little bit more masculine. They don't always tend to be, but you know, those types of things. It's like incredible like I was seeing that like um, the Coen brothers are doing a Ross McDonald no- novel that's their next project they're doing a zebra striped hearse which one of my favorite Ross McDonald books that book was published in the fucking 60s dude like, that book was published like like 60 years ago and like we have no crime novels that can fill that or even come close to that now to make a movie of it's it's incredible and I think it just shows how terrible like where the industry is we're culturally irrelevant is where we are but i don't want to start this off all depressed we should move off of this topic the state of publishing and i'm relatively inexperienced in it because again i I can't break through to that so you know don't take my word for it listeners you know i'm a fucking you know who the fuck are we Heavy. Bored. Heavy.
0: I am heavy. 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 Bored. Thought.
1: And today, we're doing F. Scott Fitzgerald's classic novel The Great Gatsby. Another one that everybody has heard of. Everyone's heard of this. And if you haven't heard of it, you live under a rock. Or you're just dead. But even then, everybody that was born after 19, like, what was it, 40-something knew this book. Yep. The movies... I was looking it up. There's only been like six movie versions of this, which I was, which I was say, surprised
0: I at. I'm surprised that there was that many honestly
1: well it's such a popular book that I'm surprised it was so few quite honestly I thought there would be more but the big ones are the ones in the one in 74
0: really I'm thinking like
1: thinking the Leo one in 2013
0: no I just I never really looked into it I guess because I was just thinking like how many film adaptations are there of like you know the people that we would associate with like modernist authors and there probably are a lot more than i'm aware of that were all coming out yep i was just wondering like does a farewell to arms have a movie adaptation like of course it does so
1: hemingway has a lot and he got a lot in the 60s and 70s when like all yeah. the people that like grew up reading his stuff were like still like oh let's make movies like francis ford coppola and stuff was loved hemingway and would like I think he wrote a few screen adaptations of his stuff when he was still a screenwriter and not a director yet. But, yeah.
0: Yeah, I'm getting kind of excited about my year of rest and relaxation. Dude, I've heard interviews
1: with her. She seems great, Otessa. Shout out to Otessa. Otessa, come on the pod. Come on the pod. Um, We'd love to chat, dude. She is. She doesn't give a fuck. She doesn't use social media. She literally like does not go along with her. she's one of the few big figures who I think is speaking out a little bit at the state of publishing at the state of what's happening to our art field you know she's doing that and again you know she doesn't get bogged down by the people criticizing her either because she doesn't see it because she's not online and <laughs> all that kind of stuff right like uh, and I've heard interviews with her like yeah she seems great she loves she talks about some of her biggest influences are like people like Bukowski and shit I was like oh yeah I gotta read this girl like, I gotta read her shit so I bought the book maybe yeah okay we'll add it to the list here we'll do it on this podcast listeners how about that
0: just doing a quick scan of eBay
1: (laughs) (laughs) she's like she's been that book has been a top seller but again it's because the marketing has been pushed for that so you know her first couple books didn't sell as well as this one but you know
0: her most recent is um, Lapvona
1: I haven't gotten there yet I just bought the big popular one everyone's been talking about, like, the last five years or so. And you can tell she's been very inspired by the kind of transgressive writers in, like, the 80s and 90s that, like, came before, you know, uh, those types of guys writing then. And you can tell that she's very into that. And, I mean, dude, that used to be great. <laughs> like, this is what I'm, like, we talked about this. We've always talked about it with the Stephen King, it the sewer scene, and shit. like, this kind of, books used to be fair game for the worst shit imaginable Like you used to go to them for the most shocking disturbing like trashy elements possible and uh that is being systemically wiped out literally you're not allowed to publish it in books anymore and this is due to editors agents publishing houses this is it that's what i mean everything has gotten worse and we're still insisting it hasn't and we can see the numbers the industry is failing uh, they're basically at this point It's straight up abuse of writers When they're taking these, these exploitive contracts Where they don't give you any marketing And take all the money for your book It's incredible <clears throat> That we've reached this point And one of the interesting things about those statistics Colleen Hoover, that romance writer Who self-publishes all her stuff She literally was in like Had eight of the top 20 books this past year Damn like literally meaning she was selling millions of copies of this self published romance stuff. You know, we're not big romance people. We don't really read those. Although it'd be interesting to do a romance novel on the pod. Listeners send in racks. We'd like to, uh, we have no idea about romance genre. So I don't know. I was thinking we would do like a Danielle steel book or something just to sure. wet our, wet our appetite. I don't know. Listeners can chime in, see which, uh, where we should head in the romance direction and do a heavy board episode. But yeah, man, it's, uh, I think it just shows what's happening. Like you self-publishing, like I said used to be a laughing stock. It's not so much a laughing stock anymore. Even if you're no good, if you find the audience, you know, you're not a literary writer, there's still an audience out there that it clearly isn't being served. Clearly the current romance novels are not serving the audience like Colleen Hoover's are. You know what I mean? And I think of this with a lot of self-published stuff that I see online and, and it, like men's adventure fiction i'm not even a huge fan of the genre but you know every once in a while i like to read a stupid book you know and um those just don't exist anymore you have to like you can barely find them if you go into a barnes and noble like it's all about katniss everdeen (laughs) and all this kind of shit and like there is no men's adventure fiction for people to read on the bus you know
0: tris Pryor.
1: Which is why people are going backwards. They're reading stuff and making movies of books that were published 160, you know, 50 years ago. Uh, Like, you know, white noise, right? Noah Bombach just did white noise. And I'm not a huge fan of that book. I'm not a big Don DeLillo fan, period. But, like, that book was published literally, like, 40 years ago. Like, (laughs) that, that book was published 40 years ago. And we just made a movie about it. And we made a movie so late about it because, like, the humor doesn't hold up, the irony doesn't hold up. And I don't know if you watched that or not, but it, I mean, the book itself, I think, is a boring book that doesn't hold up that much, but, like, I'm sure that means the story in the movie did, didn't either, although I haven't watched it yet. I'm not a big no-bomb-back guy. Um, I think he's incredibly boring, yeah. I,
0: yeah, it's not for me.
1: I liked parts of Marriage Story and stuff like that. I think parts didn't of that were really it. good, but that was because the actors were really good. And then, like, I think, and, you know, he writes good dialogues, you know, he knows how to write dialogue and things like that, but... His direction is just, you know, he always kind of misses the mark for me. But uh, I'll watch that eventually, I'm sure. White Noise, I just haven't had time and don't care enough to be oh, I really want to watch this. Oh, I really gotta watch it. I'm always behind on all that shit anyway, dude. I don't keep up with shit. I'm listening to music from like three years ago because like I just never keep up with it. I have to like, I'm like three years behind. But it's new to me so we're doing the great gatsby today we have preambled good long time i'm Uh,
0: really hung up on buying this fucking book now what book
1: yeah tessa book yeah yeah whatever you can find cheap copies of the great gatsby everywhere you can go into a used bookstore there's probably like a hundred little ratted you know tattered up paperbacks where you can find a copy of this it's a short book it reads pretty quick uh my version i have this kind of cheap print-on-demand copy because i bought this kind of compilation of all four of fitzgerald novels uh because the only one i had read before this was the great gatsby but you know i hadn't read the great gatsby since like high school first couple years of college so it's been a while uh, I had forgotten a lot of it besides, like, you know, the 2013 movie. You kind of get your memory jogged and stuff like that. But
0: I'd tried and failed so many times that I feel like I remember maybe the first couple chapters of the book. They were all pretty familiar to me, even if it had been a long time.
1: But Did you have to yeah. read it in high school? Nope. You weren't assigned it and you just didn't do nope. it or you just were never assigned it?
0: I was never assigned it.
1: I was assigned it in high school and then in college I was assigned it a few times.
0: I was never once assigned this book, not once.
1: Huh. Interesting.
0: Which I think maybe could have I could have appreciated it more. Um in that kind of context.
1: Yeah, and this originally was published in nineteen twenty five. It was Fitzgerald's third novel, I believe. Um was it? I believe so.
0: I mean, I assume that your collection is, like, in chronological order.
1: No, it isn't, actually. Oh. Uh, because it's a cheap, like, print-on-demand, so I don't think somebody took the time to do sorry. that. You know what I mean? Uh, but I just bought it because it was 20 bucks, and I got all four of his books, and I've read two of them so far. Let's I read... Yeah, I mean the Gatsby f- for this one, and then I read This Side of Paradise, which was his first novel. Yeah, and I still have Tales of the Jazz It looks like it Age goes
0: This Side of Paradise. Then we have
1: Beautiful and the Damned. The
0: Beautiful and the Damned and the Curious Case of Benjamin Button, and then Gatsby and Then Tender Is the Night. Oh, and I guess there's also one called Winter Dreams. Winter Dreams.
1: 20- there's. I think that's a story collection.
0: And that's in twenty two
1: because he, I, cause Benjamin Button is like a long short story kind of novella too and yeah, I think that I, was in one of those collections probably uh, but his four novels are Tales of the Jazz Age The Beautiful and the Damned The Side of Paradise and The Gatsby and then his unfinished one is The Love of the Last Tycoon that he like died before he finished although I've heard the first part that he actually finished is quite good
0: that's yeah I, yeah. I think I read something about that too
1: but uh, you know I haven't read it myself so listeners dive in uh, but this is a good place to start. This is this is the first time you've read it, so uh, thoughts.
0: Yep. <sighs> so, I have historically not really enjoyed what little of Fitzgerald I have read. I think he's one of the ones that I tried time and time again. You know, when I was a young, strapping new English major i was like i'm an english major i'm gonna read fitzgerald i read fitzgerald now um yeah and i just i don't know if it was like i had been too broken down after reading the sun also rises and being like i don't know (laughs) if this is for me um i think you know i tried to read tender is the night and every person i've said that to was like oh god no like why start there um Which, oddly enough, I do have a copy of. And, uh, you know, I think I had maybe that sort of in my head. Like, I was aware of Fitzgerald as someone who was, like, clearly talented as a writer. But whose writing didn't particularly interest me. And whether it was because... I don't know I think maybe some of it is just like the cultural knowledge of knowing the great Gatsby right like I went into this essentially already knowing the story knowing yeah, I mean, it's the been elevated cultural to, like, significance of this yeah. story knowing that like you know when when did that movie come out when did the most recent
1: uh 2013 was the Lerman Leo yeah.
0: D- didn't love that <laughs> Um, Which, you know, isn't really about Fitzgerald at all. Whether or not I liked the movie that his book was made into. I was sort of in the middle. I liked it more at the end. I think it's a good book. It is... I wasn't, like, super thrilled to be reading it, but it was a quick read. And... It was, like, one of these weird situations where I find so many of the characters so detestable that you, I just find myself kind of, like, recoiling a little bit as I, like, read certain parts, but not in a way that's, like, oh, this is bad, but, like, in a, ugh, like, this person disgusts me. And it took a while in the book for me to figure out whether or not... Um, that was like the appropriate response. But overall, I mean, it's a good, obviously it's like a, you know, it's a great novel. Um I'm glad to have read it. It's not one that I felt especially moved by, though. It didn't tear me up like I wanted it to. And that kind of I think disappointed me. And I don't know how much of that is because like I already knew what was coming or because I already knew, um, or, like, I was expecting it or something. Like, I was expecting to be broken up at the end. Like, you're broken up at the e- in, like, the Age of Innocence. Like, in, maybe not in the same way. Again, we'll talk about this because we have two different, maybe, feelings about what kind of story this is. Even, like, in a House of Mirth kind of way. I'd hope to be, like... I'd hope to feel greater... Uh, emotion as I wound down but I did not
1: yeah I mean this is definitely a tragedy but not in that heart-wrenching kind of way (coughs) yeah that you would get from somebody like an Edith Wharton
0: like I don't know it feels like watching a car crash and then finding out that there were no people inside and everything's fine
1: and I think that's mainly we'll get into this but I think that might be because of how Fitzgerald chose to have the narrator tell Mm -hmm. the story as like being a character while relaying what's happening so that like the emotional resonance that's happening between Daisy and, and Gatsby you don't really see firsthand like you would in a Wharton novel type thing but yeah I would say this is definitely Fitzgerald's best work there's definitely a reason why this is the book that everybody remembers and not like his other ones you know uh, most people didn't even know the Curious Case of Benjamin Button existed before the Pat Brad Pitt movie and stuff like that. You know, he was not as famous. That fucking for this. movie, dude. Yeah, very weird. <laughs> fucking <laughs> I mean, hated it. I had to yeah. see
0: it with my family. I fucking hated it.
1: But this Don't is show definitely... me this
0: wrinkly old man baby Yeah
1: that was the weirdest part dude the, Like, because the CGI wasn't quite there yet and they had like Brad Pitt oh, looking like just, 20 like, years so old and, long, and, then they had, and like... there
0: so much like you know yeah. voiceover and I was like get me the fuck out of here yeah.
1: So like this is the one and uh, the reason it is like Sophie said it's short um, it's the shortest of his novels it reads very fast for those of you that are interested and haven't read this already Or want to reread it because, again, I don't think I would have thought of it the way I'm thinking of it now. I don't think I did think of it the way I'm thinking of it now when I had to read it in high school and things like that. Like, you know, high school, the teachers reading out of the kind of textbook where they're telling you, you know, the color green on the dock is symbolism for bullshit. And then like T.J. Eckelberger's eyes are like God's eyes. Well, there was
0: a lot of, oh, all of the symbolism, symbolism, symbolism. It's a heavily symbolic book.
1: I don't necessarily... I mean, I guess they could say that, but I, I I guess it's just my personal... I hate when people start pulling these threads that are maybe there, but we don't know, and they're just going to pull them out. It's like, this is a theory on it, and this is actually how you should inter... I'm like, well, you know, we can get theoretical, but yeah, it's it's hard for me. You know, I'm such a cynic about this kind of formalist. Like, what matters is the book in front of you. What matters is, you know, the poem sure. in front of you that, like when we start going into the realm of what's it symbolizing, I just feel like we're wasting time because we're never going to get to the end of that, you know? I
0: mean, I feel like it's so obviously and intentionally there. I feel like that's, like, one of Fitzgerald's things. Like, he's so... Like, you can feel it, him trying to build meaning through, like, these small moments, um, these little motifs that occur
1: And it may be why this is his most successful book, because when I was reading that, he does something similar in his first book, This Side of Paradise, which is basically autofiction. But, like, he doesn't quite capture it. He's trying to do these kind of, like, symbolic gestures or these little scenes that would lay on to, like, a bigger layered piece of symbol, like, you know, symbolism. It was like, he doesn't quite achieve it. But in Gatsby, everything of his quirks just works. Like, you know... (coughs) Better than the other stuff, but overall, yeah, I read it very fast. Um, I thought it was great. Uh, I'm with Sophie that the ending is a little long because we have this kind of Nick Caraway carrying on the story after, and like those last that last chapter, I was just a little bit like, all right, you know, do we really need to have Nick Caraway telling all this stuff?
0: Well, I think some of it felt important to me to yeah. tie up. Um because I think it was also intended to be revealing, like if you hadn't figured out the kind of people that we were dealing with in the first just eight chapters, it was in chapter nine that you figured it out.
1: Yeah. And I was when I was reading this I started noticing things that I would see in more contemporary writers that were clearly inspired by Fitzgerald. The way he structures gossip and things like that in the mm. novel got me a very much like Breddy uh American Psycho vibe kind of thing. And I think uh, Breddy Stinellis has very publicly said that Great Gatsby is one of his favorite books. You know, he's read it more than any other book. And um, it's clearly a huge inspiration to his entire career. So like things like that, you can see people, writers, over the last hundred years since this was published be inspired by it. I mean, this. I think this book was actually a flop when it came out, wasn't it? Like it didn't sell. No idea. I think it didn't sell and there was this, there's a rumor, I don't know if this is true, listeners can check, there's a rumor that like the story, you know, sometimes the legend matters more than the actual reality but like the legend is that This was a flop and it got this kind of revival during World War II because when they were handing out books to the soldiers, like like American soldiers, you know, they would hand out supplies. So they'd hand out cartons of cigarettes, you know, chocolate bars, whatever it is that they're handing out to the soldiers. They would also hand them paperbacks and they would print these like cheap paperbacks for the soldiers that had like these two short novels in them and like one of them was The Great Gatsby it was like two novels in a single book and then you know because that was like one of the few thing books they were handing out to soldiers it got passed around you know the barracks and stuff and then everybody ended up reading it and like loving it and it got this huge revival kind of post-World War II that's where we saw a movie version that still exists I think in 49 and then um you know, the rest is history type thing. It got kind of canonized in this way. And it's, you know, a lot of books, you know, when we did Moby Dick, this is kind of what happened to Moby Dick, like, uh, although that wasn't handed out to soldiers, at least that's not the legend of it. Scholars kind of got obsessed with it, uh, you know, 40 years after it was published, and discovered the merits and like well we overlooked this one kind of thing that happens a lot because why well because we're only human right (laughs) like we can only and this is why we encourage you to buy a copy of these books keep them on your shelf read it again later in your life because when you're 30 this book's going to mean something different to you than when you're 18 forced to read it in high school or even younger in a lot of these schools you know when I was a 14 15 year old do I think I would have noticed what I noticed this time absolutely not like absolutely not but, yeah, overall, I liked it. And you said you didn't hate it, but you weren't crazy about it.
0: I wasn't in love. Well, it was just, I was trying to figure, I mean, I just hated the characters from the beginning. I don't think you're all supposed to like them. No, not all of them. See, I was skeptical of Nick at first. I was skeptical me, of our narrator.
1: Yeah, they that's a lot of scholarship I saw here. I was obsessed with Nick Carraway. But, like, for me, I was almost, like, rooting for Gatsby.
0: Well, I think that's sort of when
1: I was reading it.
0: Yeah, I feel like we're Which is like, maybe this like a... there is a weird thing. I think I think he's like a tragic
1: figure, but also N- not quite anti-hero, but but
0: not quite unlikable.
1: Right, but there's like but the charm. there's something kind
0: of repulsive about him. Yeah, that I, and I you know I think that they're kind of explained. Those things are explained to us throughout the novel in various ways through the eyes of Nick. But especially like, I mean, when we immediately we are not supposed to like Tom, who is like, you know, just kind of like a racist asshole. Yeah, I think his first, like first dialogue is about the white race. Oh, yeah, and, yeah. it, it yeah. is. But right after that, it <laughs> that's <laughs> um, like his first dialogue. And yeah. I was like, oh, yeah, um, and it was in the first chapter. And we get from Nick, there was something pathetic in his concentration, as if his complacency, more acute than of old, was not enough to him anymore. Uh, I feel like this is a theme that comes up. And that happens right after the the uh, race relations passage. Um,
1: yeah, and keep in mind, this was published in 25, guys. So literally, segregation was a thing, right? <laughs> like, like Literally, people... That be, literally, professors at Harvard were publishing race science garbage. Okay, that's what was happening in the 1925. So, like, yeah. white people were like still doing this kind of superiority thing, and uh, you know, people are it's still going on. But like, it was really bad. It was really it was bad really there. bad. Think of yeah. it this way: we
0: were in between two world wars, the second yeah. of which was a Holocaust. Yeah.
1: So there's that. Yeah. You, you. But but even in the 1925. This is supposed to make you think that actually Tom's not a good guy. Because even in 1925, right. if you were obsessed with this stuff, people were like, all right, you know, kind of, okay. And now it's even, you know, people are like, what the fuck's wrong with you now? Yeah. But like in 1925, it was already kind of starting. to be Like, okay, dude, talk about these Harvard professors, you know, writing books on eugenics or whatever the fuck it was sure. in the 20s and 30s. But
0: Yeah, but immediately, <laughs> you know, we get this sort of theme of, complacency or contentment um not like just always being like too little always being a little bit bored or like jaded or um looking for the right word but
1: well nick carraway and i think the reason that he did this kind of nick carraway's narrating it as he's watching the events and then sometimes he's being told after he's telling us that after he remembers them or something Mm -hmm. and like it's interesting because his character is a is is lower in class than the main than daisy and tom and gatsby and all that (coughs) even though we learn gatsby's faking it but it's like he's almost judging them as he's narrating the story to us he's giving us little things about how they look disinterested or bored with what they're saying they don't actually believe what they're saying he's giving us these kind of narrative kind of his own input into what's happening in the story here uh some of the descriptions of the jordan baker character i think were pretty good too with nick describing what it was and their kind of weird kind of love that wasn't actually love kind of convenience of kissing each other and they say kissing but you know it was 1925 right like you couldn't say they were fucking but <laughs> you couldn't print that in a book uh, <laughs> which is nuts to somebody like us that grew up in where that wasn't a thing but yeah all that good stuff we liked it uh all right
0: Oh, here it is. Uh, Well, I was thinking, I mean, like, yeah, we get these snippets of him judging it, but it also opens with him talking about, like, you know, this advice that his father had given him a long time ago, and um, that advice is, whenever you feel like criticizing anyone, he told me, just remember that all the people in this world haven't had the advantages that you have had. In consequence, and this is a little bit later, in consequence, I'm inclined to reserve all judgments, a habit that has opened up many curious natures to me and also made me the victim of not a few veteran bores.
1: Yeah, one of the lines in that second, really third paragraph of that opening, of the opening chapter, reserving judgments is a matter of infinite hope.
0: Infinite hope, which I think we quickly learn is going to be sort of an important I don't know I mean I guess a theme but really only in for the most part I think uh, in a few places mostly in Gatsby's world right he is like a tragic hopeful he won't let go of hope he is hopeful to maybe um, a great detriment
1: yeah. And even after that, you know, we get the idea of, of Carraway giving his judgments on this, reserving judgment as a matter of infinite hope. The very next paragraph, he says, only Gatsby, the man who gives his name to this book, was exempt from my reaction. Gatsby, who represented everything for which I have an unaffected scorn. And it is, so already we get in this kind of, you know, Carraway is skeptical. He's skeptical, and it's interesting, like, he's really the one that changes through the book where he's extremely skeptical of Gatsby and then, like, actually really admires him towards the end kind of thing. Well, I guess we could talk about that, but...
0: Well, he even goes on. No, Gatsby turned out all right in the end. It is what preyed on Gatsby, what foul dust (coughs) floated in the wake of his dreams that temporarily closed out my interest in the abortive sorrows and short-winded elations of men.
1: And he does, I guess I'm saying... like. Kerouac is lower class, but not quite poverty, you know. Like, he's not, like, middle class. He's still upper class, but not as yeah. rich as these extremely rich, you know, Dave Buchanans and Gatsbys and things.
0: Well, yeah, we, try, we he's trying to be a bondsman, right? Um,
1: because he's not so rich, right. he still has to work. He's working in finance. He probably went to Ivy League schools and all that kind of stuff, but, like, he's still not quite rich enough to have elaborate parties or horses. Or, you know, he's renting a little small house where, in, amongst all these big houses. So he's a little out of place, and he kind of is constantly reminded of that as he's interacting with these people. And he's a little bit disgusted, because there is a little bit of judgment in, you know in what well, he's, he's doing little, here. Yeah, that's why we said, like, the very first paragraph, he's talking about judgment being infinite hope, and then I think this is set up at least... Structurally, to give us this kind of change in Nick Carraway, where he's very almost admires Gatsby for what he did, how big the lie was, and how much he was able to carry it with him. But I just thought it's interesting. We started off with that, yeah. And from there, the book fucking flies, dude. I mean, I was yeah. flying through it.
0: Um, I think I was bored up through it wasn't until like I got to a chapter that I hadn't actually read (laughs) I think that maybe was part of it because even if I didn't entirely remember everything that happened it felt very familiar but maybe it was around like chapter four where I became more interested um (coughs) <coughs> and at this point, I already kind of hate the people that I've met in the book, including Daisy, who I find kind of just as detestable as Tom. Yeah. She's also kind of described as like this. I, I don't know if like this is like a Fitzgerald thing or, you know, if it's just this character, but she's like just this sort of manic pixie girl, <laughs> you know,
1: very aloof.
0: Um, yeah, she feels like a kind of hollow character to me. Um,
1: yeah. The big thing I noticed was uh, on my version page, not 591, but it's kind of um, when he first meets, when he's going to Daisy's house for lunch or whatever, for dinner. And this is...
0: <clears throat> the first time?
1: Yeah, it's still in the them? first chapter. It's kind of... Towards the end of uh, chapter one, right before the last break, but there's when he's talking to her and uh, she's telling him about her kid. Uh, yeah. She's like, uh, "Oh yes." She looked at me absently. Listen, Nick, t- uh, let me tell you what I said when she was born. Would you like to hear? Very much. Uh, it'll show. It'll show you how I've gotten to feel about things. Well, she was less than an hour old, and Tom was God knows where. I woke up out of the ether with an utterly abandoned feeling and asked the nurse right away if it was a boy or a girl. She told me it was a girl, and so I turned my head away and wept. All right, I said, I'm glad it's a girl, and I hope she'll be a fool. That's the best thing a girl can be in this world, a beautiful little fool. You see, I think everything's terrible anyhow, she went on in a convinced way. Everybody thinks so, the most advanced people, and I know. I've been everywhere and seen everything and done everything. Her eyes flashed around her in a defiant way, rather like Tom's, and she laughed with thrilling scorn. Sophisticated. God, I'm sophisticated. (laughs) she said, yeah, the instant her voice broke off, ceasing to compel my attention, my belief, I felt that the basic insincerity of what she had said, it made me uneasy, as though the whole evening had been a trick of some sort to exact a contributory, (coughs) contributory emotion from me. I waited, and sure enough, in a moment she looked at me with an absolute smirk on her lovely face as if she had asserted her membership in a rather distinguished secret society to which she and Tom belonged. Things like that, right? You see, I think everything's terrible anyhow.
0: <laughs> yeah, but it's also about part, like being a part of this, you know, a, for lack of a better term, like rich people club. Right, like they're sort of complacent the in, their, yeah. Yeah, in their, like, comfortable life and want excitement and can't get it.
1: And we and talked about this a little bit with, like, Lana Del Rey episode where she has things that touch on this. You know, you would like to be like, oh, this rich person has an ideal life. But, you know, everybody has their own depression and things that they deal because they're human still, even if you're a rich human. All that. And, it, you know, it's kind of laughable. And this was a trend, I guess, in the 20s and stuff, this kind of, like, upper class... They call it satire. Like this is what they said with what we did Wharton's House of Mirth and stuff. Like everybody calls it satire, but like, isn't it just like a real depiction of like these people don't give a fuck? Well, yeah, about I think there's co- a lo- like, I think
0: there's a level of commentary there.
1: Yeah. I'm just like, is it satire if you're just showing what it is? Like these people don't give a fuck about like people below them. Like literally walk all over them, and it doesn't matter at all because they just are isolated from the consequences. And I guess we can laugh at that and scorn that, but, like, I'd be like, that's just reality. Maybe that's, you know, whatever. But, yeah, this is when I decided, like, right here in this moment with the Daisy and Nick, and Nick kind of giving his narration around how Daisy's face is looking, how, like, he felt the basic insincerity of what she had said kind of stuff. Like, she doesn't even mean what she's saying. She doesn't even know what she's saying. She's just kind of aloof and laying there on, like, a chaise. Mm
0: Mm-hmm
1: that's when I was like okay like having Nick as narrator makes this more interesting because he's inserting judgments as yeah. he's telling this and as we get this kind of gossiping and that's what most of the dialogue is in this right like the entire drama around this is yeah, the other the affair and the murder but then like it's mostly gossip right yep. didn't you hear Gatsby did this you know this kind of thing and I remember well, listening yeah. to a, a David Mamet interview uh, people that don't know, although probably most people listening know him, right, famous American playwright, uh, Pulitzer Prize winner, very good writer, he just made this statement in an interview about dialogue where he said, gossip is dialogue where he just said you know tom says bippity boppity boo he's like sharon says this 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 he's like that's as good as it gets okay that's as good as dialogue and any dramatic thing gets he's like it should always be this kind of gossip between characters lies misunderstandings this kind of talking about another character in the room all of that he's like that is where true drama lies and i guess he's he's talking mostly stage plays and stuff but still it works at all kind of fiction dramatized things and i think it works here too with this kind of gossip he was very good at that you know wharton's very good at that too the kind of gossipy talk back and forth she was a little deeper i think with some of her stuff but yeah i like it i mean I, i loved it i was texting sophie like as soon as i blew through like the first 20 pages i was like damn this reads fast as shit
0: Yeah, it's not. I mean, yeah, for being a novel of the 20s, it's not a difficult read, I would say. Yeah, and we also, I don't know if you want to talk about Gatsby's first appearance. Maybe we can just briefly say, like, yeah, yeah. there's that. There is, like, this famous moment or a moment that I think. I think of as famous because it just feels like a famous literary image of Gatsby looking out across the Long Island Sound um, at the dock where um, Daisy and Tom's house is and sees this green light. And obviously, you know, Nick is telling us all this, that he's witnessing the man who lives next to him. We haven't named him yet. Um Stretching out his arms in the dark toward this green light, this tiny green light. And that, I think, is, like, the beginning. Like, you know. Um,
1: and then we get the... It, f- yeah. Yeah, go ahead. Was, we get the first interaction with Nick and Gatsby in my version on page six hundred four, 605, but it's in um, chapter 3.
0: Yeah, it's in the chapter where... It,
1: Yeah, where Nick gets invited to the party first, and at one point he's talking, you know, the famous thing is, uh, at a lull in the entertainment, the man looked at me and smiled. "'Your face is familiar,' he said politely. "'Weren't you in the 3rd Division during the war?' I said, "'Why, yes. I was in the 9th Machine Gun Battalion. "'I was in the 7th Infantry until June 1918. I knew I'd seen you somewhere before.' We talked for a moment about some wet, gray little villages in France. Evidently he lived in this vicinity, for he told me that he had just bought a hydroplane and was going to try it out in the morning. Want to go with me, old sport? Just near the shore along the Sound. What time? Any time that suits you best. It was on the tip of my tongue to ask his name when Jordan looked around and smiled. Having a gay time now, she inquired. Much better, I turned again to my new acquaintance. This is an unusual party for me. I haven't even seen the host. I live over there. I waved my hand at the invisible hedge in the distance, and this man Gatsby sent over his chauffeur with an invitation. For a moment he looked at me as if he had failed to understand. "I'm Gatsby," he said suddenly. "What?" I exclaimed. "Oh, I beg your pardon. I thought you knew, old sport. I'm afraid I'm not very good ho- I'm afraid I'm not a very good host." He smiled understandingly, much more than understandingly. It was one of those rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it that you may come across four or five times in life. And I've just highlighted that part where it's like he's describing Gatsby's smile, like just the charm of this person, this, this person's presence sitting near him, kind of like understandingly, but much more than understandingly. Rare smiles with a quality of eternal reassurance in it.
0: Eternal reassurance. Sounds like eternal hope. Insistent that everything will work out.
1: Yeah. It faced or seemed to face the whole external world for an instant. And then concentrated on you with an irresistible prejudice in your favor.
0: (laughs) Which is also like, uh, uh, you know, comparing that to our first... Um, image of Gatsby as like a man with his arms outstretched, and supposedly tr- like he says, "I thought I saw his arms trembling or his hands trembling," and like he seems almost desperate, and like he wants to be alone. Um, yeah, I think
1: the word desperate is appropriate here because I think it 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 shows the desperation, like what's behind, not e- even just wealthy people like Tom or somebody, like there's a desperation to many of these characters.
0: Yeah. Um, It really also doesn't...
1: To be something they aren't, kind of thing.
0: Mm -hmm. It also doesn't take very long for um, Nick to begin to dislike him.
1: It's when he starts inserting himself into Nick's life to get Daisy... Mm-hmm. that Nick starts being like, well, this is rude. This is strange. Like,
0: Yeah, it's when he's like, I need you to have tea with Jordan Baker. I need you to yeah. have tea with Mrs. Baker so that she can tell you something that I won't tell you. Like, And it's really weird. There's something really strange about him, and there's something that is also very imposing about him, not about, like, I'm not talking about, like, his... The, Figure like we would maybe think of like Tom as the more physically imposing character um, but imposing himself on other people's lives and sort of forcing other people to play a role um, in his sort of race to acquire whatever it is he's seeking.
1: Yeah. Yeah, there's just this idea of the desperation, this kind of... And, like, the gossip around everything.
0: But also kind of an inability to see how he actually affects other people or how his actions are going to affect other people.
1: And this idea of Nick when he says uh, at the end of Chapter 3 here, um, everyone suspects himself of at least one of the cardinal virtues and this is mine. I am one of the few honest people that I have ever known. What do we think? Is Nick Carraway honest?
0: I mean, I, th- I found him to be a trustworthy narrator. Except for, like, I mean, I found him to be a little bit e- egotistical at the beginning. In his own descriptions of himself, but as it went on, yeah, I think I trusted him as a narrator. Which surprised me because of statements like that.
1: And this is a technique, and I know there's lots of stuff said about Nick Carraway as narrator and scholarship over the last hundred years, but it's like when you're reading a novel, one of the techniques you can use as a writer for a reader to experience is readers don't have a choice but to trust your narrator, right? If you're taking the novel seriously and engaging in it, reading it, you're trusting the person telling you the story, you know, even well, it's right. narrator, you can
0: intentionally and then you can
1: subvert that. Yeah. That's, what um, I mean. that's an what
0: unreliable it. narrator.
1: Right? right? You can subvert their expectations through that. So the narrator is telling you something and then you show them something else right. kind of thing. You can use that to your advantage and it doesn't quite what happens here, but it's like along those lines. So uh, just, you know, for the writers that, uh, the book people that are listening with the structure of this,
0: well, what do you mean? Because, I like, did you th- find him to be trustworthy? Or uh, did you did. have, like, a similar reaction to me where it was, like, you were skeptical at first and then less skeptical? Because I felt skeptical of him at first.
1: Um, I didn't feel skeptical of him, really, at any time. Besides maybe when he started talking very highly of himself. Like, this yeah. is one of the few honest Those people were that the I've places. ever known. Yeah. Uh, it is interesting because I personally struggle with some of this, too. Whereas, like, I really don't like it's hard for me to not be honest about things uh like it eats me alive kind of thing you know what I mean I don't know if that has to do with how you're raised or whatever if I Catholic guilt whatever it is like this kind of like I can't willingly lie to people like it's very hard for me to do that kind of thing so I get where he's like he believes himself to be honest but you know you can still lie to yourself but you know are there moments in here that we could point to where he's lying to himself? I think we could make an argument, but then I was like, you know, then you go to the actual structure, you know, when you're reading a book, you're, you're buying in, like you're being immersed into this person's world, into this world, you're creating a new world, even if it's fictional, right? Even if it resembles the real world, it's still like a fictional kind of. So you just kind of roll with it, you know, I'm just never as skeptical of narrators. Well, yeah, he engages I guess it's just in naive. virtually I guess I'm no people-pleasing
0: behaviors. Yeah in this book like he is not i don't know putting on a charm for anybody or
1: and he seems to be portrayed as forgetful like there's a few chapters where he starts them off with oh before i forget this happened a couple weeks ago you know what i mean yeah and then that scene in the apartment in the city when he is all that commotion going on between gatsby tom and daisy and he just sits there and goes oh i just remembered today's my birthday Kind of right. thing it's just like oh okay dude like you forgot about it like yeah all right but like yeah things like that uh maybe a little disingenuous but you know we can get nitpicky but yeah overall i liked caraway and i think like you said i kind of liked him more at the end too when he was just kind of so flabbergasted that nobody cared kind yeah. of thing and again I think that does kind of show his honesty in a way where he thought these people well and said he was like friends, angry at them right, right. exactly because well, these people that said they were friends of Gatsby weren't actually fr- you know and this is very common if you get into like very elite circles right you're only a friend as long as somebody needs you all that kind of stuff how can they use you when you have well, something they want right. kind of thing like Daisy horror has horror disappeared yeah.
0: she is you know I mean maybe we should like
1: talk yeah, about talk the major
0: next? the major events
1: i yeah, guess yeah. of the yeah. book do, uh, i guess it's really the end of chapter four where we get some of the ma- because of the tea and all that
0: oh right so like when um when the tea is about to happen when gatsby comes to nick's house and they're like waiting for daisy to arrive for this tea and he like is freaking out. He's losing his fucking mind. He is being something in, I think like, the a neurotic, Leo, anxious mess.
1: And something I think the Leo version captured very well. Leo yeah, played I can this envision very him well in that, right. that yeah. suit in the rain. And just kind of his face and like his kind of motions. You know, the f- big famous ones. So Leo in 2013 and then Robert Redford in 74 uh, were the big Gatsby figures throughout, you know, American pop culture history. Because, you know, I like that kind of thing. But... I just kept, and I kept picturing that, the Leo scene, because it's a very distinct scene in the Boz Lerman version there, with he shows up all soaking wet after he ran through the backyard, the flowers coming in, they make kind of a joke out of it, um, more so than it is in the book, although Nick is still in the book being like, oh, he didn't think mine was good enough, you know, and I think in the 2013 movie version, they actually make it even more extravagant, where like Gatsby brings in his own tea set and stuff. Whereas oh, yeah, in the in the book like, he just sex, asks with, like if he needs to making a sure, tea sure the lawn is
0: yeah. cut and like yeah. he's very concerned with the appearances of the whole thing, but at the same time he's also like, you know, it's like moments to the time when she's supposed to arrive. Yeah. And he's just like throwing up his hands and being like, It's done, she's not coming, it's not worth it. Let, uh, this is a mistake. <laughs> you know? Like, nothing's gonna happen. Um, so there is like this weird in those moments, like you see the breakdown of the sort of
1: and you see this in the um, the,
0: cultivated exterior
1: and you see this in the conversation between jordan baker who is like you know nick's kind of love interest at the time who's friends with daisy and then um nick here at the end of chapter four after we get this kind of like
0: that tea is so awkward so
1: this is before the tea but this is right before this is after he already asked him but before we see the events of the tea And Jordan's talking to him, and she's telling him that, like, you know, Gatsby, this is like, he's talking to her. He's like, what a strange coincidence, I said, but it wasn't a coincidence at all. Why not? Gatsby bought that house so that Daisy would be just across the bay. Then it had not been merely the stars to which he had aspired on that June night. He came alive to me, delivered suddenly from the womb of his purposeless splendor. "'He wants to know,' continued Jordan, "'if you'll invite Daisy to your house some afternoon "'and then let him come over.' "'The modesty of the demand shook me. "'He had waited five years and bought a mansion "'where he dispensed starlight to casual moss "'so that he could come over some afternoon "'to a stranger's garden. "'Did I have to know all this before he could ask such a thing? "'He's afraid. He's waited so long. "'He thought you might be offended. "'You see, he's a regular tough underneath it all. "'Something worried me. "'Why didn't he ask you to arrange a meeting?' He wants her to see his house, she explained, and your house is right next door. Oh, I think he half expected her to wander into one of his parties some night, went on Jordan, but she never did. Then he began asking people casually if they knew her, and I was the first one he found. It was that night he sent for me at his dance, and you should have heard the elaborate way he worked up to it. Of course, I immediately suggested a luncheon in New York, and I thought he'd go mad. Uh, I don't want to do anything out of the way, he kept saying. I want to to see her right next door. When I said you were a particular friend of Tom's, he started to abandon the whole idea. He doesn't know very much about Tom, though he says he's read a Chicago paper for years just on the chance of catching a glimpse of Daisy's name. And this kind of thing where she's talking about why Gatsby's going to ask him to invite daisy for tea and then he's gonna show up he's kind of like organizing a meet cute or something right like this kind yeah of
0: but it's like five years in the making and it's like uh, a
1: psychotic obsession kind it's of it's like yeah.
0: very i mean yeah it's like there's this part of me that's like doing that unfair like no but like we want him to chase like we want him it's flattering to have someone this in love right but then it's also like this is creepy like you went and bought a house so that you could be like a you know not to like right. throw around language but it's like stalkery right, right? it's a sen- it's kind of stalkery behavior which you know um it, it, but yeah, I don't think here it's intended to be like, he's a stalker. It's just like, it's really, it, yeah, uh, like you said, ob- obsessively, like, and, or uh, psychotically obsessive.
1: But the way it's told, <clears throat> I agree with all that, but like the way it's told is like a romanticizing of that obsession. Yes. And there is this kind of, and Sophie and I texted about this a little bit, we should get into it now, I guess, with oh. this kind of, it's a very masculine book. Sophie yeah. was texting me about this, and I think that's true. I think it mainly because it's from the point of view of a male narrator, and then we well, must follow I this male. Well, I think that the man, male you know,
0: characters gatsby. feel more real. The female characters, in some ways, feel a little bit hollow to me, but in a way that may be intentional, and maybe some of it is not. Like, you know, it's sort of hard for me to. Stay one way or another i already sort of said what i think of daisy but i think that she's supposed to be kind of a detestable person um, a lot of
1: his female characters are written that way in this side of paradise it was kind of like that as well like the main guy was always kind of disgusted by how aloof and uneducated the women he was around right, right. you know this and was a so, time you know. when the women were not going to college right princeton was well all and man. we know fitzgerald yeah. did
0: not have a happy marriage like we know right. that that yeah. you know he was not um you but know, is, necessarily yeah. kind to women. So, like, there is, it, it is hard, I guess, to not see that in the book and not even, even not knowing about Fitzgerald, right? Like, you can feel that the male characters feel more real or have more depth. They feel like Tom almost feels like the most, um, Tangible, like real character to me. Like I can just envision him without having to refer to who played him in a movie or right. like, I, you know, there's something about him that feels like a real character to me um, more so than any of the women in the novel.
1: And this is something I think that isn't mentioned or it is not just, it just isn't talked about as honestly. And uh, some of the more recent stuff where there is this level that I think this book captures of that when a man is in love with a woman, uh, there are things that, like, he would be willing to do in terms of, like, somebody like Gatsby. Is he willing to, like, literally commit crimes and lie about everything just to have a chance at what he has been chasing for the last five years since this girl he met, well, before he was shipped off in the army kind of thing, you know what I mean? Right. And there's... There's something, it's like a romantic tragedy, I think, to that. Like this idea of, yes, men, a lot of men are willing to do this to get the person that they love or think they love in the case of this. Think they love, yeah. But even so, I mean, we doubt that he actually loved her. I think he was naive about his chances, considering she was already married to somebody who was actually wealthy and powerful well, and stuff. I think when we learn what his motivation in her chasing her was. for her to love was. him.
0: Like, I mean, I think when we learn his sort of backstory with her, um, how they met, how he actually began to pursue her, why she appealed to him, and it wasn't just that she was beautiful, it was that there was something magical about her this sort of world that she lived in that she was particularly wanted by other men things that essentially increased her value so really early on it was just like a you're something valuable that I feel I can't have and that intrigues me and then he like they become tied up in this like brief romance before he goes to the war
1: and that's why I kept getting this idea of the love story with this idea of the romantic love story where it's everything he did. He did to just have a chance at Daisy literally spent years staring at the end of her dock, you know, uh, would host these parties that he couldn't afford just for the chance of her to sure. show up because he didn't want to just show up to the house. Right. Just like with the Kerak, he had this kind of he didn't want to be rude. He didn't want to be forcing himself in there. But at the same time, he did, right? Because everybody wants what they want to some extent, and then it's...
0: Right, well, and he wants to acquire her, right? Like, she is... I mean, like, I feel obnoxious saying this, because I feel like I could just, like, be, you know... In, like, my college class, talking about why this book is anti-women, or... Like, I don't know. Right, yeah. uh, And that's not what I'm trying to say. I... um but like I do think he is painted that way and I think he is painted that way intentionally as like someone who thinks that he uh, you know loves her but actually he is just reaching toward this idea of a person that if he could have would somehow increase the value of his world in some way
1: but not only that I would argue I guess the push against it is that he doesn't care about the things that he accumulated, really, because he did it all to get her. What he cares about is getting a chance with Daisy. So he's willing to abandon all of that.
0: Sure. Right. When she comes moment. over and finally um, sees his stuff, he's like, "Re," you know, I, I don't remember the exact quote, but he's like revaluing everything in his house in relation to her interest. Right.
1: in Right. Exactly. Um, he only cares about getting her. And then and there's that moment of this, where. Yeah.
0: She's, like, crying over the shirt.
1: That's, right? yeah, let's talk about that.
0: Moment. Um, be- and to me, I was like, you know, I'm actually not sure how to read this. Because I think it's, like, on some level, I'm like, oh, is this her crying over a lost opportunity and is a lost opportunity with him or is it a lost opportunity because what she wants is like nice things which she has she has nice things She's she has everything
1: he has and more basically
0: yeah and and like for real (laughs) you know and um so it's weird it's like on in on the one hand is she sobbing into these shirts because actually because of what she says they're just so beautiful i've never seen such beautiful shirts i'm just so you know like and that's really what she says yeah.
1: right let's let's read this <coughs> passage because i think that was a line that i marked too because i wanted to talk about it just on page 627 yeah, my hold version. up you
0: read i'm gonna pee real quick
1: yeah it's right at the end of uh chapter five there uh He, uh, okay, so he's talking to Nick Kerouac here as he's telling, showing Nick and Daisy the, uh, his house. It's the funniest thing, old sport, he said hilariously. I can't, when I try to... He had passed visibly through two states and was entering upon a third. After his embarrassment and his unreasoning joy, he was consumed with wonder at her presence. He had been full of the idea so long, dreamed it right through to the end, waited with his teeth set, so to speak, at an inconceivable pitch of intensity. Now, in the reaction, he was running down like an overwhelmed clock. Recovering himself in a minute, he opened, for two, he opened for us two hulking patent cabinets, which held his masked suits and dressing gowns and ties, and his shirts, piled like bricks and stacks a dozen high. I've got a man in England who buys me clothes. He sends over a selection of things at the beginning of each season, spring and fall. He took out a pile of shirts and began throwing them, one by one before us, shirts of sheer linen and thick silk and fine flannel, which lost their folds as they fell and covered the table in many-coloured disarray. While we admired, he brought more, and the soft rich heat mounted higher, shirts with stripes and scrolls and plaids in coral and apple-green and lavender and faint orange with monograms of Indian blue. Suddenly, with a stain, with a strained sound, Daisy bent her head into the shirts and began to cry, stormily. They're such beautiful shirts, she sobbed, her voice muffled in thick folds. It makes me sad because I've never seen such such beautiful shirts before. And that's the end of that little section there. And my question there is just like, yeah, you know, she's not talking about the shirts, right?
0: Yeah, but, I mean, like, but what is she talking about, right? Because she's just, she's not. Why
1: she, well, that's the thing. Okay, so she's crying after he's throwing out these shirts. Like, literally throwing them there to show what he has, what he does, what he's he accomplished. He is, he's
0: peacocking.
1: Peacocking, yes. And there's been scholarship on this, of the Bowery Bird type, uh, Gatsby's Mansion, blah, blah, blah. But, yeah, peacocking. But that's why I said it's like, I don't believe Daisy's crying about the shirts here, but all she can manage to say is talk about these shirts. Nobody cares about the shirts, actually.
0: Well, I think it's not entirely not about the shirts, right? Like, because she's, it's not just that it's Gatsby is the sense I get. It's look at this life I've cultivated just for you. It's like... um. He's presenting her with some, like, overwhelming gift that is the wrong time for her to have. It is, like, just a physical or material, like, you know, sort of manifestation of, like, something. Of, like, maybe, like, a missed opportunity. Opportunity
1: that cannot it's the moment, really
0: be restored
1: yeah i think it's the moment where daisy realizes like because we could say that like oh it's just a dumb line but i think it's actually kind of a quote of a brilliant way to show that there's something going on besides the house tour and nick carraway's hinting at it as he's showing you this stuff right like there's there's clearly more to this in their kind of reunion oh well yeah
0: we don't see so much of it right we just know that like we have this really awkward scene with the tea right and they're like (laughs) staring at each other and like at some point you know Nick leaves the house he sort of is like yeah this isn't for me like I'm just gonna wait outside Um, and like when we see them it's like weird and there's like something knowing between them and Daisy's crying and you know it's all very sort of we never actually see, um, which, is, which is why I don't think it's actually a love story, right? Like, I mean, for a hundred other reasons, but, like, you never actually see um, any, like, passion happen between them. You see maybe, like, oh, you know, meaningful looks, or, like, she turns into his arm, or, like, you know, you know someone gets a kiss on the forehead whatever it's like these little tiny gestures but we don't see like the meat of what happens between them in those moments
1: there's hints in the later narration from caraway that daisy's been going over his house quite frequently because we only see from caraway's perspective so there are weeks missing at a time kind of thing as we go through the events but that's so the it's whole clear thing that like, like
0: now they're having like some kind of an affair.
1: An affair. Yeah, and you can't say fucking because it's 1925, right. right? But like he's implying it in kind of a you know they did this in the 50s during that like stuff with the haze in movies and stuff where like they yeah, wouldn't show sex scenes what they would do is they'd show two people kissing and then they'd like show a door closing or something right. implying that they were going into the bedroom implying that they're having sex without showing a steamy hot you know sex scenes or whatever yeah that didn't happen until you know later uh 60s but
0: yeah i guess my point with all of that is that like it's not really because oh she loves him like i don't feel like that's what the shirt scene is actually about she's just like this is some other life that I could have had and I'm not fully content with my current situation right like she's jaded she's bored she's like she wants it seems like she wants she's like in the perfect position much like Tom to like want the exciting new thing Um, and Tom maybe has the independence to sort of finance that while she doesn't you know, she has to sneak away, and so does he, but, like, he's also buying his mistress, like, a little, um... Dog. <laughs> but, well, yeah, isn't isn't he, doesn't he, like, own her apartment, like?
1: Uh, the apartment like, that they, they go or, to to have the affair in the city. Yeah, yeah he owns that, and, like, she likes to pretend that she's a rich person's wife when they're there, and she takes... she Caraway describes this in one of the earlier chapters when Tom insists he meets his woman in the city... Uh, Again, because this is 1925 and men just openly had affairs, I guess, married men um, uh, without consequence. So it was like, um, you know, he wanted to brag to Nick, essentially. And then Nick said one of the first things he notices is that how, you know, the mistress... uh, myrtle starts changing her tone when she's in the apartment and is changed into a nice dress that tom all oh, that tom paid for right she's like pretending that she's now part of the aristocracy yeah and she and really enjoyed like that. refers to and her tom dress as like oh
0: it's just something i throw on what i don't care what i right. look like. like so she's this, really yeah. awful too like it's right. obnoxious you know we don't no, get the no, sense yeah, that she's making a so. joke she's right. just, like just kind of being annoying
1: and you know this is she doesn't understand she maybe she does and she's just okay with it because she's getting what she wants out of it type thing you know you could put it that way where tom gets to have his cake and eat it too and this woman gets to pretend to play rich lady's husband Uh, well it seems like maybe like she
0: wants them to you know she wants to leave her husband but um tom won't leave daisy and gets really angry when he when they talk about it and and then he basically punches her in the face and breaks her nose
1: yeah, they imply she's nice and thick too, and busty, yeah. and uh, Why Stuff hit. that men men crave. Yeah, but this thing, like the shirts, and that's why I keep saying this. Like she's she's crying, she sobbed, her voice muffled in the thick folds. It makes me, it makes me sad because I've never seen such such beautiful shirts before. Like this kind of, I think it implies she doesn't know what else to say, and she's looking for a reason to explain why she just broke down in tears in front of everybody. And yeah. we all kind of know anyway. But it's hard to thinking about this love that like that like has was between them and that. But it's like this
0: past thing and it's not and I don't feel like it's actually about the love. It's like, oh, like this could have been like this could have been my life with this man and these shirts (laughs) like this house. Um, Or it just could have been a different life from the one that I am currently fed up with. Right. So maybe, yeah, I don't know. I'm torn on that one. Um, but yeah, do we want to talk about, I guess, sort of the big events?
1: Well, yeah, and as we get into Chapter 6 here, we start getting the big events. But the one thing I wanted to point out in Chapter 6 is this kind of idea of repeating the past. And what we mm-hmm. think of it, there's this conversation between Gatsby and Carraway mm-hmm. after all that went down in the house touring the tea and all that and he just said uh Gatsby's speaking he said and she doesn't understand he said she used to be able to understand we'd sit for hours he broke off and began to walk up and down a desolate path of fruit rinds and discarded favors and crushed flowers I wouldn't ask too much of her I ventured you can't repeat the past can't repeat the past he said he cried incredulously why of course you can He looked around him wildly, as if the past were lurking here in the shadow of his house, just out of reach of his hand. Yeah. What do we think?
0: Yeah, I'm looking for what page it's on here, because I know I marked it.
1: It's like literally right before chapter 7 here, last couple paragraphs.
0: Yeah, I found it. Yeah. It's 238 to 39 in the... um, Well, I can't really say that, because you can sort of... (laughs) I have the Apple Books version on my phone and you can also change the way the text. Right. Um, but yeah, it's on like 238. Yeah, I mean, there is this sort of... That's the constant thing, right? He is longing for a past that he'll never get back and... I mean, again, just out of reach of his hand. Just like, you know, he's reaching across the Um, The sound And there are a lot of I think Sort of Moments that point back to that Initial moment But yeah yeah, he says I'm going to fix everything Just the way it was before He said nodding determinately She'll see
1: Yeah he talked And then Caraway's narration He talked a lot about the past And I gathered that he wanted to recover something Some idea of himself perhaps that had gone into loving Daisy. His life had been confused and disordered since then, but if he could once return to a certain starting place and go over it all slowly, he could find out what that thing was.
0: Yeah, it's like they're both um, pining for older <coughs> versions of themselves, but not actually quite each other.
1: And you know, what are we just repeating the past, maybe it's like kind of a life lesson.
0: Sure. I mean, I think that's the the whole idea of Gatsby, right? He's living his life chasing the past, right?
1: Or at least chasing. And this then girl. he
0: dies. Yeah, but he's also like chasing like his former self, who he was, like with this girl, and who she was with him, and like his idea of them together, and like his uh, sort of almost, almost obnoxiously like romantic take on everything but um i guess it's not really his take on everything it's we're getting it through nick carraway so maybe that is actually nick
1: and put like this idea too is like he's also trying to get away from his former self like he clearly wants to be uh you know, when his father comes in at the end there and he's like, Oh, my son, you know, he was a big time guy. Like, kind of, he wanted to get away from his kind of Midwestern small life. He wanted this grand life of luxury in New York type thing while bringing, and I mean, he did that partly because he hated himself, I think, because Daisy couldn't get with him. She, he wasn't even a marriage prospect for somebody like her because, again, he was too low in class, too poor uh so like yeah i think that it's complicated in the sense of he wants to repeat the past but he only wants to repeat that part of him with his new self he doesn't want to be the one that she left that she chose tom over and this kind of thing and i i think you know this is where i say that it's very masculine as well where this is this thing that i've seen you know and there's Tropes about, you know, crazy ex-girlfriend and stuff like that, right? That TV show and all that. and The kind of tropes about it and all that, right? There's there's levels of this everywhere. But there's this male thing where, like, like, I have a friend, dude. And, you know, I'm not saying names or anything. But, like, he's been in love with this girl for years. And they dated for a while. And, you know, they moved on. She moved on. She's married to somebody else now. My friend is doesn't believe it, will not accept it kind of thing. And he's going, you know, goes at ridiculous things to get this girl just to speak to him again. You know, he's yeah. just like, so, and you know, that this is just such a common thing that men do daily <laughs> kind of thing. Uh, that mm-hmm. it's like, I just, I just couldn't help but see the romantic side of it.
0: Yeah. I mean, I this idea women do of like, too, to some degree,
1: right. It just, it tends to be more extreme because <laughs> like, like the men tend to get a little bit more psychotic about it. Maybe, uh, type thing
0: or maybe more inclined to like hide it or like be hide sneaky it. about it or i don't know i i, I mean i don't actually yeah. know but um yeah i mean like should we talk about how oh well, i guess like before we get to every, how everything breaks down well, no right let's just go to how everything chap- breaks down <laughs> yeah
1: chapter seven is where it starts because that's when gatsby and tom start getting um They've known each other a few times, now they've met each other a few things, a few times, and um, kind of a few pages into chapter seven here, I started seeing where, you know, Tom sees what's happening between Daisy and and Gatsby for himself, because it happens right in front of him. And and this, if anybody watched White Lotus season two, it reminded me very much of that scene at the end of season two where aubrey aubrey plaza that one guy uh is talking you know ridiculously like out of his ass and she's just like sitting there reading a book and she's like you're an idiot and then like her husband that was her husband's sign to know yeah. that she had, had she had cheated on him with him because he's like you wouldn't say that to anybody except somebody that you had been intimate with kind of thing yeah like kind of and like this is kind of the same thing so there's this scene where he's talking you know it's hot as shit in the Buchanan house it's a hot day in the summertime uh those that are from the northeast mid-atlantic and you know how humid heat. it gets yeah how humid it gets and it's you know this isn't like the south where people are used to humidity like william faulkner where everybody's sweaty all the time this is like a rare occurrence it's never usually this hot and humid in these parts of the country so people don't deal with it as well as like you know people living in the south where it's hot as shit all the time But there was that little thing where she's daisy's i just marked it because i thought it was funny where she's talking to her child and she like gets up and a tiny gust of powder rose from her bosom into the air they're all like caked in powder jordan has powder all over her hands because uh, listeners that don't know this before deodorant and things like that uh talcum powder was used to because it absorbs moisture yeah. was used to keep yourself dry and from smelling and having body odor and stuff so like when you're really sweaty i guess they're putting it all over their tits and stuff like all yeah. over their bodies to keep the sweat rings and the tit sweat and all that from like being unbearable yeah so they're like dousing themselves in powder but then you know okay they're at the buchanan's house and there's this scene uh Who wants to go to town, demanded Daisy insistently. Gatsby's eyes floated toward her. Ah, she cried. You look so cool. Their eyes met, and they stared together at each other, alone in space. With an effort, she glanced down at the table. You always look so cool, she repeated. She had told him that she loved him, and Tom Buchanan saw. He was astounded. His mouth opened a little, and he looked at Gatsby and then back at Daisy, as if he had just recognized her as someone he knew a long time ago. You resemble the advertisement of the man. She went on innocently. You know the advertisement of the man. All right, broke in Tom quickly. I'm perfectly willing to go to town. Come on, we're all going to town. Like this kind of like Tom yeah, saw it. I'm he saw it. it. Up. <laughs> they didn't say that they loved each other, but he saw it. That little interaction between one another. And I, this might be hard to understand for people that haven't been in long-term relationships. Like like there is something. Like, when you know something's up because it's different, there's, like, a communication that's silent. between like You You have to be with someone a long time to be able to pick up on these things. But, like, once you do, like, again, it's why I brought up that season two of White Lotus where, like, there's a big dramatic scene where it's not said, but then the husband understands what just occurred in front of him kind of thing because he knows his wife, right, because they know each other. They've slept in the same bed for a decade or more, right, like, every night. Like, you know each other. You know the habits, the mannerisms, the inflections of voice, Attitudes, like kind of thing, and then Tom Buchanan saw it. He just saw it. Oh, you're always so cool. Mm -hmm. Like him giving this kind of innocent comment under normal circumstances, right? If you're just like sitting at a party with a few friends or whatever, but then when you're sitting in this situation where they clearly have something between one another, it's obvious, right? Everybody knows. I remember being at an MFA party one time, and this guy was really into a girl that was in the you know the program. And I remember my wife, we weren't married at the time yet, but, you know, we were living together, engaged, and she turned to me after the party. We're driving home, and she's just like, so he follows her around like a little puppy, huh? And I was like, oh, you saw that, didn't you? Like, he, this guy was literally following this girl around the party like a little dog. Oh, you need anything? Oh, you need, you know, like, like men do this. Like, they literally will die <laughs> to get this woman if they want, like, if they, like, could convince themselves that they love them, you know, kind of thing and like Sophie said that could be real that could be imagined it could be even if it's not though right like all that matters is what happens there but yeah what do we think of this this kind of moment of she had told Tom told him that she loved him and Tom well, yes and saw. the
0: beginning of the breakdown right they're all yeah, yeah, yeah. here in the house together and he's trying for a recovery right because he can't he also can't just like burst out right like he's been doing this for years like and he's been having affairs with women <laughs>
1: It's implied as he's talking to Nick and Nick's giving you that stuff because he lets Daisy go with Gatsby in the car, right? Everybody knows this scene from the movies and stuff. And then he's driving with Nick and Jordan and he's saying... You know i think something's been going on with this gatsby guy he's he tells us that he had started a little investigation into him because he was spending a little bit too much time with his wife kind of thing and he was a little suspicious of this guy and he started to find out you know the secrets that this gatsby's a liar and he's just kind of flabbergasted that he didn't think his wife had the gall or like the balls to have an affair kind of thing and he says this as they argue and it's one of the more famous lines where he's, I'm going to start taking better care of you now kind of thing where he started basically like admitting that, yes, everybody knows he's been having these affairs, you know, having his cake and eating it too type thing. But he's yeah, like, he trying j- to he get her just yeah.
0: like be mad at her because even though he is right, like, yeah, he is he's mad. a piece
1: of shit. And yeah.
0: but yeah, he also knows that like he could have a role to play in this. And yeah. I think
1: this is one thing that Fitzgerald does brilliantly, is that that shirt scene where we she's crying. We know it's not really about the shirts, but all she can manage to say is, I've never seen such, such beautiful shirts before. Or like, kind of crying, unable to even make sense of the situation. It's a stupid thing to say, right? It's dumb. And same thing with this. You always look so cool, she repeated, looking down at the table, right? Like, she can't even meet eyes with him when she says it, because she knows.
0: But, oh, there's this moment... Um... Before that, before they even get in the car, before they go to town, he start, he's like, gonna go get some whiskey. Tom is gonna go get some whiskey, and he goes inside. Gatsby turned to me rigidly. I can't say anything in his house. Old sport. Again, old sport. Very annoying. Very annoying through the whole thing. Which is one of the things that makes him kind of like a little unlikable. Um, and I think that's a good
1: trope, too. Yeah. The, the old sport. Well, how no it's like kind writers, of an, almost yeah. unnatural. Yeah, um, if you want your like characters to sound different in dialogue, is a little trick, is you give them a little quirky thing that they say or do or pronounce something, and it automatically gives your character a little bit of a quirk, differentiate them from other characters. So something like old sport, although you can't use that now because everybody's gonna think Gatsby if you do that. But yeah. Yeah.
0: Well, there's this moment <laughs> right after that, where Nick says, "She's got an indiscreet voice," I remarked. It's full of. I hesitated. Her voice is full of money, he said suddenly. That was it. I had never understood before. It was full of money. That was the inexhaustible charm that rose and fell in it, the jingle of it, the symbol song of it, right? Um, and this is like a description that we get throughout the novel about her voice, right? There's something in her voice that draws people in like, um, and, you know, he, he describes it sort of as music a lot of the time. And then we get this moment like, oh, it's money. She, her voice has money. In it. <laughs> what do we make of that? Because I kind of, I, I mean, uh, the only way I, I would think to read it is like, yeah, she, her voice is the voice of somebody who is well taken care of, who is used to money, who is like, has all the comforts of life
1: there's an arrogance and an irresponsibility i think to people especially people that are born into money so if you didn't have to work for it and you you know there's nothing wrong with that right we get mad at people like that but you know some people are just lucky they're born into. but people are
0: also very charmed by it
1: they're charmed by it because you have things that they want but it's like yeah there is this level of and i think that it kind of shows this stuff about gatsby too like gatsby's not dumb like he's not stupid i think the lies got so big that he couldn't keep up with it at a certain point but also like it's clear he knows that in order to even have a chance with this girl, he needs to give her money. Like he needs to have money for her kind of thing. But like, it's also
0: another moment that I think kind of reveals her as a character who's like kind of
1: gross. Right. Well, like, and I think it's him kind of admitting that where he's kind of like, she never used to be like that. Or maybe she was always mm, like that.
0: I think it's suggested that she was always kind of like that, right? Like that he was not of the right you know, breed of man for her. Like, you know, he was of the wrong stock or something. And that's like, kind of what drew him in. Like, that she was like this unattainable thing that he would reach for. Just like, to see if he could. And then it became an obsession. And he's like, and we fell in love. Um,
1: And she loved him. Like...
0: At least then. Or like, you know. I mean... But yeah, there's that whole thing about how, like, she just, he just, or Gatsby just wants her to say that she never loved Tom and just, like, undo the last, however, you know, four or five years.
1: Do you want to go to that scene?
0: Um,
1: Where they're, like, actually in the apartment and he's saying it, like, you never loved him. Kind of, after the big blob when it's all out in the open now. Uh, Page 647 in mine... In uh, chapter seven, I believe. Okay, so here's the the main scene. I'll read it to you. It's only a few paragraphs. Uh, so they you know, everybody knows the scene. They're in that uh, apartment, or they're in that hotel room because they rent that hotel room to drink mint juleps in because again it's so awkward everybody's kind of reeling they don't know what to do tom turned to daisy sharply you've been seeing this fellow for five years not seen said gatsby no we couldn't meet but both of us loved each other all that time old sport and you didn't know i used to laugh sometimes but there was no laughter in his eyes to think that you didn't know oh That's all. Tom tapped his thick fingers together like a clergyman and leaned back in his chair. You're crazy, he exploded. I can't speak about what happened five years ago because I didn't know Daisy then, and I'll be damned if I see how you got within a mile of her unless you brought the groceries to the back door. But all the rest of that's a goddamn lie. Daisy loved me when she married me, and she loves me now. No, said Gatsby, shaking his head. She does, though. The trouble is that sometimes she gets foolish ideas in her head and doesn't know what she's doing, he nodded sagely. And what's more, I love Daisy, too. Once in a while, I go off on a spree and make a fool of myself, but I always come back. And in my heart, I love her all the time. You're revolting, said Daisy. She turned to me, and her voice, dropping an octave lower, filled the room with thrilling scorn. Do you know why we left Chicago? I'm surprised that they didn't treat you to the story of that little spree. Gatsby walked over and stood beside her. Daisy, that's all over now, he said earnestly. It doesn't matter anymore. Just tell him the truth, that you never loved him, and it's all wiped out forever. She looked at him blindly. Why? How could I love him? Possibly. You never loved him. She hesitated. Her eyes fell on Jordan and me with a sort of appeal, as though she realized at last what she was doing, and as though she had never, all along, intended doing anything at all. But it was done now. It was too late. I never loved him, she said, with perceptible reluctance. Mm. Yeah, great fucking scene, dude. Great fucking scene. Again, big famous scene. Everybody knows this scene because it's like the big blow up where Gatsby smashes the glass. And uh, again, I think Leo did it pretty well. And you know, everybody talks Robert Redford. I think Leo did a pretty good job in that playing Gatsby in that pink suit. And this is where it basically this is the climax, right? Yep. Although we don't get we get the murder eventually uh, after it after this too. But like this is basically the dramatic climate yeah
0: i mean it's so deeply awkward it's like they're all here it's only happening between three people but there are more people present right like you know nick is here and uh you know jordan with whom he is like you know somewhat entangled is here and um, basically we realized like yeah i mean there was something about daisy being like Uh, this idea that Daisy was never going to actually do anything, that she was just sort of rolling along, much like Tom. Like, she, she is a lot like Tom. Like, she was never going to do anything. She was going to have this affair, and it was going to be, like, her thing, her fun thing. But she never had any intention of actually leaving her husband, much in the way he never had any intention of leaving her. Right. And it's just, like, there is something really selfish in Gatsby here, right? Tell him you never loved him. Like, you know, he's so insistent on that. Right. And we don't know if she had ever maybe told him that to sort of make him happy or whatever. Um, and even later when he tells... Nick I think like oh you don't understand she wasn't she didn't know what she was saying
1: well that and then like you know after she says this out loud Tom the very next line in that uh, Tom starts bringing up memories of them together right Uh, not that day I carried you down from the punch bowl to keep your shoes dry there was a husky tenderness in his tone Daisy please don't her voice was cold but the rancor was gone from it she looked at Gatsby there Jay she said but her hand as she tried to light a cigarette was trembling. Suddenly she threw the cigarette and the burning match on the carpet. Oh, you want too much, she cried to Gatsby. I love you now. Isn't that enough? I can't help what's past. She began to sob helplessly. I did love him once, but I loved you too. Gatsby's eyes opened and closed. You loved me too, he repeated. Even that's a lie, Tom said savagely said tom savagely she didn't know you were alive why there are things between daisy and me that you'll never know things that neither of us can ever forget the words seemed to bite physically into gatsby i want to speak to daisy alone he insisted she's all excited now even alone i can't say i never loved tom she admitted in a pitiful voice it wouldn't be true of course it wouldn't Tom agreed she turned to her husband as if it mattered to you she said of course it matters i'm going to take better care of you from now on you don't understand said gatsby with a touch of panic you're not going to take care of her anymore i'm not tom opened his eyes wide and laughed he could afford he could afford to control himself now why is that daisy's leaving you you know
0: and clearly she is not she's like you know i can't stand this and she runs yeah, he's outside. like,
1: and then Tom's like, nonsense. And she's like, I am, though, she said with a visible effort. She's not leaving me. Tom's words suddenly leaned down over Gatsby. Certainly not for a common swindler who'd have to steal the ring he put on her finger. Yeah, and then she starts, you know, I won't stand this, cried Daisy. Oh, please, let's get out.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: And this one, yeah, and Tom's basically like, yeah, this is it. But that's the big pivotal climax in it. She tells her husband, and then she, you know, she, they do. I guess she'd been telling Gatsby that's what was going to happen. And then it comes time for it to happen, and she realizes that actually she didn't mean it all that much, but also she did.
0: Yeah, I think maybe she, like, I just get the sense that she never had the intention of actually falling through.
1: Well, and she's just, she's portrayed as very aloof very noncommittal very kind of uh, I don't know life just happens to me you know I'm a beautiful woman and all these men want me and I just let it happen you know life just happens to me kind of thing and it's just that moment where it all comes to fruition here and then there's and
0: oh go on
1: well I mean it just it's as good as like you know mamet said this is as good as it gets in terms of drama dialogue and stuff back and forth the the gossip is all coming out like the the affairs all of that like this is as good as it gets and I mean I I think it's well done this is why we remember this scene this is why we make it into movies still kind of thing yeah and most of Fitzgerald's stuff has this kind of tragic lost love ending very tragic figure
0: yeah so then we get sort of Well, one of the last few final events, right? So it's just, like, the last three chapters are just, like, you know, a chaos. Complete chaos. Everything's kind of breaking down. And we get the wife, or, um, you know, Tom's mistress.
1: Yeah, Myrtle.
0: Myrtle and her husband. And they're, like, fighting um there was like also like this moment where tom realizes that he's trying to that uh wilson mr wilson is trying to like take his wife and just like get out like we're gonna move we're gonna he go found out her her that life. she was having an yeah. affair yeah
1: in movie versions they talk about the pearls and stuff that she had but in the book it's a dog collar yeah it's a dog
0: collar because she really wanted a little dog and they get a dog and
1: and it's like more expensive dog collar than she could have afforded type yeah thing, you know.
0: um, well and like also why yeah but and, yeah. Um, but they're fighting at some point like we see them fighting and a moment later she rushed out into the dusk waving her hands and shouting before she could move from his door the business was over and then we you know go into the story of what actually happened so she was hit by a car
1: killed instantly her breast was hanging off that's what they describe that's like the most description and then we get a little bit of description of like yeah she's basically ripped open because she got hit by a car going too fast but yeah what about that like when we get like (coughs) wilson going after gatsby yeah and uh you know wilson's the one that shoots gatsby at the end a lot of people know that ending again because this is a very popular story but like You know what i was focused on is this kind of nick's final kind of chapters after that Mm -hmm. when we find out and nick is kind of the only one to mourn his friend's loss and we talked about this a little already where he's the he's really kind of angry and shocked that he's the only one that called himself a friend of gatsby that is showing up well and also this was
0: like a revenge killing but you know gatsby wasn't all, he was also just the owner of the car he was not the one driving right daisy was driving well, the car
1: daisy he died for her. that's why yeah. i'm gonna stake my my hill to die on he loved her so much he died for her kind of thing mm-hmm. which was kind of inevitable was always going to happen but like yeah i think
0: he was like too sort of hopeful that he like that that just was a consequence that wasn't going to happen
1: yeah well what's um that? But then the first we discover, we
0: right? We discover that Tom... Uh, Reserving was,
1: judgments is a matter of infinite hope.
0: Well, and also, uh, you know, we learn that Tom was the one who sort of...
1: Sicked you know, Wilson after him to yeah. protect himself. And Daisy, to some extent, because yeah. Daisy's the one that killed him. But, yeah. So he literally dies to protect her yeah, in, a, so, in a
0: way. And, you know, I guess Wilson also, like killed himself maybe
1: he killed himself after he killed Gatsby yeah Yeah. Um, they write that he they found his body in the bushes
0: and it's like you know sort of this grisly scene and um
1: but what do we think of Nick and like his mourning that's where
0: yeah I mean well one of his last interactions with Gatsby right he gives him this one and only compliment that he has ever given and says like you're worth more than all of them Like, all of these motherfuckers, fuck them. Your value is greater. Um, Right. And it's a weird moment because he's like, you know, I didn't really like him, but I don't regret giving him this compliment. And then, of course, because the next thing that happens is Gatsby dies. Um, What I was less sure of is why that compliment does happen. Right. When it does.
1: Well, I think because I think... And this goes back to me kind of like as I was reading this, I found myself rooting for Gatsby, even, you know, knowing how it ends kind of thing. And I think Nick is supposed to feel that to some extent, too, is that, yeah, there's things that he learned about him. But even at the same time, like even when he's learning about his lies, Nick has this tendency to defend him. Yeah. Uh And maybe it has to do with the charm, maybe he was charmed by him, maybe. But I think it's more so like he affected his life, like Nick learned something from being a part of this, from being involved in it at all, just for the dumb fact that he rented this house, you know, and got involved in this drama with his cousin and he said at the end like he's not even really talking to his cousin anymore he didn't really talk to her before Gatsby either but then this kind of well I think he
0: recognizes that they're kind of gross but also like understands that the people around Gatsby were kind of gross that they were sort of
1: and I think how alone they were despite Um, the parties even Gatsby himself how alone he was and you see Nick mostly being alone this whole time although there's mentions of him hanging out with Jordan though we don't see it that often like he's living alone like all these people with this kind of lonely wealthy lives and maybe that's why we see this last chapter
0: it's all really kind of sad too right like even with Gatsby it's just like he keeps talking about this pool right oh but you know I haven't I haven't gone for a swim all summer I haven't been in the pool all summer they're talking about draining the pool don't do it yet I haven't like I could still go for a swim you know like even these small things like he's not even enjoying like this life that he created Um, right but still like believing that he could you know um but yeah so Gatsby's dead he meets Gatsby's father and you know that was sort of sweet and Gatsby's father clearly thought very highly of his son and you know thought that he'd be a great man and then it's just like yeah he's just ringing for anybody he's like calling everybody he's trying to find Gatsby's friends his family just anybody um, well,
1: And I think the father is there to show the The juxtaposition between how Nick is feeling about it versus how his father felt, where his father believed the lies still, right? So his father's very proud, carries around this wrinkled picture of Gatsby's mansion in his Mm -hmm. wallet or whatever, and wants to show everybody that this is his son's house. Look how fine it is. And this is when he's in the house, and his son is dead already, too. But, like, he just keeps kind of going about this, and Nick is kind of sitting there being like, well you know all that's a lie right like kind of thing but doesn't want to tell him and this kind of like I said I was a little and really intrigued by this last chapter of just Nick mourning the death of his friend because Gatsby despite all of this I think he did consider him a friend right like they talked to one another and shared their experiences and things like that and Gatsby would invite him things and offer him things, and yeah. So it is supposed. I guess it's supposed. It's supposed to be conflicting, but I think that's why we see the father at the end there, to juxtapose, like, to be the opposite of Nick in these, this situation. Meyer Wolfsheim.
0: Yeah.
1: Fixing the nineteen nineteen World Series or nineteen eighteen. Oh yeah. Well,
0: even that. Like, what was the? um, What was the? I think I even wrote that one down it's like oh that's interesting yeah the fixed world series Um, but if I had thought of it at all I would have thought of it as a thing that merely happened the end of some inevitable chain it never occurred to me that one man could start to play with the faith of 50 million people with the single mindedness of a burglar blowing a safe. yeah what'd you make of that and that's in an earlier chapter. That's in yeah, chapter four.
1: I think that shows... I, well, I think, one, it's a great scene. It's a great little detail to include in, like, a novel like this. But also, I think it's there to show how naive Nick is, that he's not quite a part of this world. Um,
0: I, I was wondering if it's, like, a parallel to Gatsby, if it's, like, a man playing with the faith of this many people and... Sure. Sort of his, this life that he's created.
1: Yeah, I mean, I could buy that. I think that's plausible. I think, yeah, and I I think, yeah, it's meant to show corruption, but, yeah, also this kind of Nick is shown to have never even considered this possibility before. That's how kind of out of the loop he is, or how kind of naive or, you know, painfully honest he likes to think of himself as. Well,
0: he's not hanging out with these men, right? Like, he's not hanging out with the men who are, like, doing these kinds of deals. Yeah, I mean, I think that when I read this one passage where Nick is talking about Tom and Daisy, I'm like, okay, like, I felt... (laughs) I felt validated in my reading of them. I felt like, all right, this was wise, like this was well done. Um, Where he says, and for me it's 389. It's like maybe 10 pages from the end. Um, It was all very careless and confused. They were careless people, Tom and Daisy. They smashed up things and creatures and then retreated back into their money or their vast carelessness or whatever it was that kept them together. And um oh and, and let other people clean up the mess they had made right. I mean that's, that is like how they feel throughout the story although again Tom still feels like a more real character than Daisy to me she still feels like this weird manic pixie like <laughs> I mean when woman. you think of
1: like an upper class woman at that time yeah Probably Um, was, but she still feels like like
0: hollow. But I also feel like we don't get as much of her as we get of Tom in a real way, right? Like we see Tom with his mistress. We don't really see Daisy with Gatsby. We don't. I don't ever get a sense that we get a true Daisy anywhere in this novel, right? She is so suppressed to me that she feels kind of hollow. I don't know if that was intended, you know. I don't think she's supposed to be likable.
1: The golden girl.
0: Yeah. What they I say? Yeah, that's pretty much, that's like the end, you know? He goes to the funeral. It's just like three of them. <laughs> three of them there. Right, and sort of uh, maybe call, like a callback to that initial scene of Gatsby. Yeah. Um. He had come a long way to this blue lawn and his dream must have seemed so close that he could hardly fail to grasp it. He did not know that it was already behind him, somewhere back in that vast obscurity beyond the city where the dark fields of the Republic rolled on under the night. Gatsby believed in the green light, the orgastic future that year by year recedes before us. It eluded us then, but that's no matter. Tomorrow we will run faster, stretch out our arms fir- farther. And one fine morning. So we beat on, boats against the current, borne back ceaselessly into the past. And Can it's like almost like, yeah, yeah, but it's also like, a, it feels very much like an explanation of that. Um, earlier scene. Yeah any thoughts any any last remarks
1: said it's great read it
0: yeah it's definitely worth i mean like i've sort of railed against reading this i think because i tried so many times and it just like sort of decided i didn't really like him i don't know i i enjoyed the last few chapters when shit started to hit the fan again yeah fucking read it uh i was bored at the beginning knew the story you probably know the story too you've probably seen a movie yeah
1: i think everybody should i think that yeah like you need to read it because there is this kind of i remember when i was in school and i would use this excuse too or i would be like, oh fuck fitzgerald and i had never read you know any of the stuff it's just something people pick up they hear people say, and they think it sounds cool because it's like dissing what people hold up as great books. And then, so definitely, yeah, buy it. Or, I mean, this one is so out there, so popular. You can find free copies, you can find dollar used copies, you can find anything, and just give it a read and decide for yourself. And just don't repeat what somebody told you to say about this book or uh, all that bullshit. But, of course, we can say it. People are going to keep doing it. But, yeah, that's it. That's Gatsby.
0: That's Gatsby.
1: All right. (coughs) Uh, Reminder to listeners, we're still looking for workshop horror stories. Send If you have a workshop horror story you want to share with us, please send that to podcast at gmail.com. We also have a subscription plan. You can subscribe to this podcast at patreon.com slash heavyboard. Receive full, uncensored episodes for subscribers only. If you don't want to do that, can't afford it, there are other ways to support us. You can leave us a five-star review on Apple. That helps us out, helps us grow. Please do that. Uh, if you don't want to do that, you can... Check it out on our YouTube channels where we put all the free episodes up there as well as clips if you don't have time to listen to the full episode. Uh, give us a subscribe, a like, a share on YouTube. That helps us out. And of course, links to all the books and shit that we disco- that we covered in the description. And this next couple episodes, y'all, this is something we've been wanting to do. You're in for a treat. At least book lovers are, literature lovers. Is we're going to do a deep dive into a complete works of Emily Dickinson. And that's going to be a lot of fun. So get out your Dickinson collections. We're, and Sophie and I are going to break that up. Get out that dick. Yeah. Pull out your dick and... Uh,
0: Pull out your dick.
1: Yeah. Pull out your Dickinson and uh, start flapping it open. No, like, there's, like, uh, but, yeah, so Sophie and I planned to hit this. We didn't want to hit, like, some of you that have this or know what we're talking about, the complete Dickinson. It's, like, a thousand-page book, isn't it? Like, it's, like...
0: It's... Stupid
1: long. It's a massive tome of all her poems And we wanted to break that up So we didn't want to squeeze that all into Like a two hour episode We're going to break that up into a couple parts Stay tuned And this has been Heavy Board. See ya Fuck my dick
0: Heavy I am heavy, heavy, heavy bored. Forward.
1: I pal,
0: pal, I do.